You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Bob. I just wanted you to know that this interview is part of the research I'm doing for something I call the Apocalypse Aversion Project. I'm trying to map out the biggest challenges facing humanity, from potentially catastrophic technologies to stupid foreign policies, to the tribalistic tendencies of human psychology, and figure out what we can do about them. The epicenter of this ever-evolving project is the Non-Zero Newsletter. I hope you'll consider subscribing at nonzero.substack.com. And while you're there, I hope you'll even consider subscribing to the paid version of the newsletter for that full Apocalypse Aversion experience. Hi, Tim. Hey, how's it going, Bob? I'm doing okay. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. Um, you are uh, Timothy Nguyen, uh, a researcher in AI at Google, but uh, importantly, for our purposes, um, you are a mathematician. Uh, after getting your, your PhD in math at uh, MIT, you uh, spent some time in academia. Uh, and your work, uh, uh, included physics. You published papers on physics and so on. Um, and it's this intersection of math and physics that is most relevant to our story today. Uh, and I gotta say, it's a very interesting story. I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, it involves on the one hand physics, uh, including the quest for a grand unified theory of physics. Um, and a recent candidate, uh, for that honor that was put forth. Uh, by Eric Weinstein, whom some people may have heard of, uh, you know, a kind of a founding figure in the so-called intellectual dark web. He's frequent podcast guests on, you know, Joe Rogan, other important podcasts and so on. He's become a pretty, um, prominent, uh, figure. So we're going to, we're going to talk about all that and your, uh, your, your, uh, critique of his theory. Uh, and, um, but it's also, uh, you know, in addition to the, the physics, which I, I definitely want to spend time on, this, it's a story about kind of the modern media ecosystem and the role that podcasts play in discourse and in, including scientific discourse now and, 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 and the way some of them can even play the role of gatekeeper in terms of which ideas get discussed and which don't. Um, and, uh, and then it is the story of uh, Eric Weinstein, whom I find in, endlessly fascinating, just as as a, a character and as a uh, a modern phenomenon. He's he's risen to, to prominence uh, in the last few years, um, in, in ways that uh, that I think kind of reflect on this on on the the, the modern digital uh, media ecosystem. So I, I want to talk about all that, uh, and I, I want to do a, a little more by way of setting it up. But first, is there anything? I've gotten wrong so far, like about you or about anything or just anything you'd want to amplify. No, everything you said is absolutely correct. Um, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of interesting things certainly to discuss, both the technical subject matter, uh, you know, at a high level, and but also uh, the role of misinformation in our age, which is certainly big in our modern society. It's, it's big in tech, certainly where I work. And also because Eric and Brett are also sort of uh, both uh, partaking in this sort of uh, information slash misinformation campaign, although in, in different ways, you know, physics versus 
anti-vac and things like that. So I, I think these are all very interesting things. Okay, so Brett, we should say, is Eric's brother, Brett Weinstein. He's actually been on my show a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, lately, uh, he's been, uh, expressing views on the, the dangers of vaccines and the merits of, uh, of alternative therapies for, um, for COVID and so on. Um, the, uh, and there are, they're an interesting pair. Uh, they, um, and, and actually Brett has a grand unified theory, or not unified, but a grand theory, in, uh, uh, in biology that he thinks isn't getting enough attention. Uh, Eric, um, uh, you know, it's, I mean, the, the, this theme of kind of, uh, misinformation and, uh, who determines which information gets out there is one that Eric has long talked about because he thinks this theory is among the ideas of his that were kind of suppressed by the establishment, this, this physics theory. He came up with it, uh, 25 years ago or something when he was a grad student, uh, in math at Harvard from which he uh, got a PhD, I think. Um, so yeah, all this figures in. Now, now before we start and, 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 and provide more necessary background information, uh, just to give people a sense of the intensity of this, uh, I want to play a little uh, recording from a clubhouse uh, conversation where, you know, so you have published a paper with a co-author who is a, a, a PhD in physics. Uh, and somebody on this clubhouse asks Eric uh, when uh, he's going to respond to the paper, which he has not done. People need to know that uh, your co-author on this paper has chosen to remain anonymous. We can get into why, but his kind of pseudonym is Theopalia. So you'll hear a reference to that and, and Eric uh, saying that this is one of the reasons he doesn't want to um, engage. But I, I want to – just takes a minute, but I, I, I think it's um, – uh, I think it's interesting. So uh, this is, again, a conversation on Clubhouse, and somebody's uh, asking a question of, of uh, Eric Weinstein. Before, sorry, before, before you go, Eric, I was actually wondering uh, specifically when we'll hear, like, a debate uh, with uh, you and Theo and Timothy about G. Sorry, who's Theo? Uh, Timothy and Theo, they put out their retort to Sorry, G who's Theo? Theo? Yeah. Uh, Theo Polia and Timothy. Yeah, I'm, not a, I'm not aware of Theo Polia. We don't know who he is. Who's Theo Polia? Uh, do you know who Timothy Wynn is? Let's talk about Theopolia. Who's Theopolia? He's the co-author from the paper. Who is he? Wynn. Yeah, who is he? I don't know. That, that wasn't the question, though, no, right? That is the question. No, the question was... No, that is the with... question. No, you you're not understand... just... yeah, you no, you're not understanding me. I've never heard in the history of physics anybody expecting to be taken seriously as an anonymous uh, critic. And the behavior of those gentlemen however many there are, two or more, including uh, various misogynistic comments against my colleagues, um, disrespecting Sabina Hassenfelder, who, uh, while she may be a critic, is also a friend of mine. I'm fucking sick of these two people, assuming it is two people. Maybe it's... But we don't know what Theopolia is. And so... Okay, so... Um, uh, and I want to, by the way, I want to credit, uh, I first heard that exchange on this podcast, Decoding the Gurus, which talks about what they call secular gurus, including the Weinstein brothers. Uh, you were a guest on that, and that's how you came to my attention. Um, the uh, So, uh, first of all, I, I think we should, he seems to be referring to 
to be including you in the group that he says has said misogynistic things and and negative things about uh, Sabina um, uh, uh, Hoff, Hassenfelder, who is a physicist who has actually been on my show a couple of years ago. Um, I, I should give you a chance to respond to the, to to that. Yeah, I mean it's quite. Uh, nonsensical and outrageous, the kind of claims he's making. Certainly for me, it, it doesn't make any sense because I, I never said anything, uh, disrespectful about Sabine. Uh, you know, in fact, she endorsed the work, uh, the response paper on her blog. And I also interviewed her at Google. So, um, you know, Sabine and I are, you know, friends in, in that uh, regard. Um, uh, in terms of the misogyny and all the other claims he's making, uh, from what I can tell, uh, nobody really even knows what Eric is referring to. I was actually just checking over some of the Discord channels yesterday to see what people were saying when they heard that clip, and, and they all expressed confusion as to what Eric was referring to. Uh, you know, a Discord channel is a public channel where anybody can join, so it, it wouldn't surprise me, just like with Reddit or or any other, you know, YouTube uh, anonymous places, people will say, um, you know, uh, not-so-savory things. So it doesn't surprise me if there were random off-color comments, but to, to portray it as some kind of focused thing, uh, certainly th th that, you know, uh, Theo Poli and I were part of that. That's, that's just, uh, you know, nonsense. Yeah. So, um, the thing goes on, we will provide a link to this. He goes on and on and it almost get, it, it actually gets more intense in a way, but, uh, you know, he says people are making threats to his family, but, but increasingly he refers not to you, but to the server or people on the server, which I gather is, a, you know, meaning a Discord server, Discord group that I gather you've been on. But anyway, um, so he is not, uh, engaged your, your criticism, uh, clearly. Uh, Sabina Hassenfelder, as you, as you, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, she, she actually let you use her blog, I think, to launch your paper critiquing his paper, right? I mean, that's where people can find, and we can link to this too, but people can find your summary of your paper on her blog. That's right. That's right. Um, and she herself has, yeah, that's right. She she critiqued Eric and, you know, Wolfram and Lisi previously in one of her, you know, YouTube videos. She, you know, she makes, uh, she has a nice channel where she uh, talks about various things in physics. So she previously critiqued Eric and then when, uh, at some point when I got in touch with her, she was also interested in, in hosting my, my article. But yes, she's, she's been a critic of Eric okay. in that regard as well. Yep. So before we get into the physics and Eric's theory and, and other things, do you want to, uh, kind of tell the story of how you became acquainted with him, his podcast, and you even had some interaction, uh, with him on a Discord server and uh and also if there's anything you can say about how the the discord uh server or group that that he's referring to like got set up or what whatever can you just uh give us the the background yeah so so yeah i guess this will be a recap on the uh the decoding the gurus uh material that you just played but yeah just a, a quick overview um so you know so i left academia in 2017 i joined google in 2019 and at some point, uh, I guess in around mid 2020, a Google colleague uh, told me that uh, I should check out this podcast by Eric and, and Brett, uh, specifically because, uh, you know, he knew that I didn't have a great time in academia. And, and that podcast episode specifically was about, uh, you know, various, uh, nefarious things going on in academia. And so my colleague just pointed out to me, uh, that episode. I listened to it. From that episode, I learned that, uh, you know, Eric has this claim about the Cybert-Witten equations, which I wrote my PhD thesis on. 
he specifically claims that uh, in some sort of vague fashion that he arrived at them before uh, Ed Witten and, and Nate Seiberg, who were the inventors of, of that set of equations. Um, so that yeah, already... This is another thing interest. he says happened when he was a graduate student at Harvard, right? I've, right. I've, I've heard him say that if if advisors or senior figures hadn't told him that his his work on these equations was going nowhere, as he's put it, the uh, there's some revolution that would have happened at Harvard rather than at uh, Princeton. Uh, if That's right. People That's right. He says actually in his his Geometric Unity video clip from 2020, where where that previously used to be the only published material on the work uh, prior to the paper being released this year. Yeah, he does use that exact language that the Cyber Witten revolution should have happened at Harvard, not at Princeton. Okay. Basically, in parentheses, I should have been the initiator, not uh, Ed Witten and, right. and, and Cyber. Um, and so I mean, you had done your dissertation on those equations. That's right. That's right. And we can, of course, go into how, you know, sort of ridiculous that claim is. But I guess maybe we should just continue. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you you did, though. I mean, you you initially approached him as kind of a fan. You liked his podcast and so on. And and, and we should say uh, you had heard him discuss physics. He he definitely knows a lot about physics in some sense. Right. And the history of physics. And and he seems Mm -hmm. to be a very smart guy. Um, and, and, and so you, uh, but, but, uh, but the first, I gather the first questions you asked him that led to skepticism on your part were about these equations and he didn't satisfy you that he had the kind of expertise you would expect of someone who actually invented them before the inventors. That's exactly right. So when I, I, you know, so, okay. So, uh, fast forward to later in 2020, um, I catch Eric on the, uh, discord voice chat. And, you know, there's around on the order of, I don't know, 20 to 50 other people. This is the, 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 the Discord for his podcast? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's multiple portal ones, but maybe at the time there was an official one. Now there's several, but at yeah, the time, his, I guess. His podcast, I should say, is called The Portal, has a, a big following. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I join, and then at some point he asked this uh, gauge theory question, which, you know, isn't that difficult if you know gauge theory or if you're a graduate student in mathematics. Um uh, but certainly it's well above the abilities of the people there that, you know, might not even know calculus. And so, you know, he, he posed the question. I thought about it for maybe 30 seconds and then I answered it. And then that was sort of my, um, you know, uh, successful introduction, if you will, because after that, there was some attention on me. I introduced myself, uh, said I went to MIT. He even knew my advisor, Tom Rovka. Uh, and then, uh, at some point, I, I asked about the Seber-Whitney equations. I asked him my technical question about the sign issue. Um, he, I forgot exactly what answer he gave, but it, it certainly was some kind of brush-off, kind of non-sequitur kind of answer, something like, oh, well, you know, it's like this in electromagnetism. He said something like that. But it, it was clearly not the kind of profundity that I would have expected from from someone who knew the equations well. Can I can I ask you a question? So I, I guess uh, one role of mine should be to try when I can to play uh, devil's advocate on his behalf. I, is it possible that somebody who did think deeply about these equations 25 years ago but hasn't been in the world of math uh, and actually even came up with them, okay, uh, could have given you the kind of answer he gave you just out of, you know, he, he's now, I don't know, early, mid-50s. Uh, is that possible i suppose it's possible because i don't know what he meant when he said oh it's like in electromagnetism blah 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 um when i think about it though sort of uh that's such a vague answer that 
you know, I think for most mathematicians, even if you don't remember the precise details, you, you sort of still retain that high level understanding of why things work. You know, you still remember that a derivative is a rate of change, even if maybe you forgot how to take the derivative of a specific function, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. So, mm-hmm. so at the very minimum, he could have given me a, a conceptual answer, but uh, even that was lacking. So I think in, in this case, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe extending too much charity to, to try to, you know, <laughs> that's ask, my job. Right? That's my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Asking where, you know, for something where there's, you know, very little. Okay. So, okay. So, so you started to have, uh, doubts, but did you continue to interact with him on Discord or? Yeah. I mean, either, because the thing is I interacted with him twice. So I don't remember now if it was the first or second time where I asked him about the Cedric Whitney equations, but there were two interactions. And it was certainly by the end of the second one that I left very dissatisfied. Uh, and I should say, you know, uh, I felt at least, you know, we were having a very civil discussion. You know, it's, it's interesting to, to uh, you know, because we were talking at the level of scientific uh, ideas. And of course, you know, when, whenever you have a discussion, there might be some clarification or or, or ideas needed. But it's, it, it's funny when you sort of look at the, uh, the Reddit, at least uh, back then, or some of the people in the Discord, they, they sort of describe it as a conference, you know, that I was making fun of Eric or, or making ad hominem things when really it was a scientific discussion. So my sense is that um, a lot of Eric's followers, they sort of treat him as this, you know, uh, unquestionable, you know, figurehead. And, and just the, just the mere questioning of his authority is a personal attack against him. Uh, but anyways, it, 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 there were two encounters. Both times I pressed him on technical issues. He didn't uh, answer them uh, well. And it was this very strange theatrics where he was, you know, impressing his followers with gauge theory while, you know, not having written up his theory, not answering technical questions. So it, it, the whole, the whole situation just smelled like a complete, you know, farce basically. Okay. Uh, like, um, well, well, I, I, at the end, I want to get into like what you think is kind of going on in, inside of his head. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll follow that up right now, but, um, just to, to get, uh, to advance the story. So, um, uh, first of all, uh, he, um, uh, on April 1st of last year, he recorded and then, uh, uploaded an edition of his portal that, uh, I, I think, or, the, or uh, he, he certainly, he, he uploaded the, uh, a lecture he had given at Oxford in 2013 about this grand theory, this grand unified theory. And, um, this to him was a big unveiling. I mean, he made a big deal of it on that's he recorded the podcast and he's he's making big claims. I mean, he's calling it a theory. He's calling it a theory of everything. He says he could be wrong, but he thinks he's not wrong. And if he's right, uh this could be huge uh because it could literally be the salvation of humankind because apparently he thinks under current physics we can't go faster than the speed of light under you know uh, but there could, we could understand something that would allow us to escape the solar system as opposed to just going to Mars. That's like Elon Musk level aspiration, his or higher, uh, to get beyond the solar system, which he thinks is necessary for true salvation, I think. Um, I mean, just in the physical existential sense. Um, and so he's clearly saying this is an important document I'm putting out, this lecture that I gave at Cambridge. And that is the thing that you dissect and, um, and, and you and your, uh, co-author, uh, post a paper about, uh, on, in, in, um, 
February, I guess, of this year. And then on again on April 1st, uh, uh, this time of, of 2020, he puts out this big paper. Now, uh, the clubhouse we just heard was, uh, I think it was after the paper came out, his paper came out and people are, it was, uh, the, the interrogator was, I think, a professor who was not totally satisfied with the paper and wanted to know why he wasn't, uh, addressing your criticism. Now, uh, two, uh, two questions. Uh, first of all, the, on the matter of your co-author, people may wonder why is your, you know, because Eric is using this as a reason not to address the paper. Why is your co-author, a PhD in physics, choosing to remain anonymous? Yeah, I mean, he just wants to avoid the public controversy, um, you know, where he is in his life. Uh, he's still, um, you know, uh, looking to grow in his career. He's, um, you know, now he's, now that he's no longer an academic, he's looking for jobs in industry. And, you know, there's there's always a small chance that maybe a future employer might Google him and, and see what he's up to. And just, just to the extent that this might, you know, smear yeah. his image or just get him and take him off in, in, yeah. in, you know, wrong directions. He just doesn't want that on his record. So okay. it's just it's just that sort of innocuous, you know, okay. reason. Yeah. And in any event, you're here if Eric wants to that's talk right. to an author. That's right. Paper and that's right. and I mean, it's not like he can dismiss you. You've got at least the credentials that you both have PhDs in math from these prestigious institutions. You've actually published papers in journals, including about physics, and and uh, he hasn't. So uh, there's that. Um, then uh, I assume so. So you wrote your paper critiquing his theory on the basis of the lecture. Uh, I assume you've kind of looked over the paper and made sure that your critiques still apply before we get into what what a grand unified theory is what what his is and what your critiques are i assume you're you continue to stand by them even in light of the paper he's published since you posted yours yeah that's right i mean it's it's kind of uh, uh you know um quite outrageous in many ways that what he put out because um, well, first of all, he actually doesn't even cite our work or mention it at all. But sort of one of our main objections, we had four in our paper. And the one which we list first, which is the most severe, is this problem with the so-called Shiab operator. And in the paper, Eric admits himself that he no longer knows how to construct the Shiab operator, this very fundamental thing. So that basically vindicates our work. We said that there was a problem. He admits there's a problem and says he doesn't know what to do about it. And it's... Uh, you know, so actually, in some sense, when the paper came out the very first day, I thought, okay, well, he's already admitted defeat. I mean, there was also this very funny disclaimer on the first page that he's not a physicist and an entertainer and that his work is a piece of entertainment. Um, so it's actually kind of funny how um, there are still people, Eric himself, taking the work seriously for reasons I don't quite understand. And and actually, this is kind of uh, where we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we can mention already, this is... I think ties into the whole misinformation uh, campaign in the sense that, you know, he, he wants to release his work on April Fool's and he puts these disclaimers and sort of, you can't tell if the joke is on us or on him. What's the joke? What's the, what's the, uh, you know, is, is he trying to, uh, you know, have an out in case he's wrong? Does he really think himself as an entertainer? This theory is no longer a theory of everything. It's, it's very hard to tell. But anyways, if you just sort of ignore the theatrics, the scientific uh, content of the paper uh, you know, uh, admits that there's this problem and it also does not address or cite, uh, our work. So yeah, certainly our objections, uh, still hold. And, you know, further in that re clubhouse reporting, his, his responses, his attempted responses at the objections are all basically nonsense, just complete smoke screens. 
Well, there are no substantive responses, are there, in the clubhouse thing? I mean, there, there are no... Well, he mentions things like, oh, you know, he says that, oh, one of our complaints is that the theory is chiral, that, uh, you know, his theory isn't chiral, but our objection is that there's a chiral anomaly, which is not the same thing as being a chiral theory. And so he, you know, he knows that most of his audience isn't technical, so he could sort of try to uh, mischaracterize our criticisms and pretend that he's uh, addressed them. But, you know, if he were a serious scientist, you know, the... The way scientific work is responded to is you have to formulate the objections precisely, and then you also have to give a precise response. And it's clear that he's fallen uh, well short of that. Okay. Again, in my role as devil's advocate, I'll say I have had the experience, like when I write a book and there's a book review and it's clearly negative, and I just scan it and think, oh, this is so stupid. And I have this kind of caricature of what the criticisms are in my head. Like I might just see chiral, the word chiral and go, oh, he thinks it's a chiral theory and not, and not bother to assess it. Uh, you know, cause you don't like to read things that are negative about your stuff. Uh, but anyway, I, I would leave open the possibility that he's not consciously, well, who, I, I would just say you never know what's going on consciously in, in people's minds. And, and, uh, I, I find his mind particularly interesting in that regard. But, but, um, so I, I don't know if you want to reply to that, feel free, but, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's other evidence that he's sort of not going to respond. I mean, you know, I also have the, uh, the Ivan Bros yeah. podcast where I go into excruciating technical detail, but in a very, uh, kind of, uh, uh, more accessible way. Um, uh, I have every reason to believe that Eric also is not interested in responding, uh, to that, uh, yeah. content. Uh, uh, you know, he also tried to evade, uh, on Clubhouse, the person who was interrogating him, his name is Joseph. And, you know, when he gets to the point of the Shiab operator, it's pretty clear there that he doesn't want to reiterate what he's already admitted, which is that the Shiab operator is, is a no-go. And so it, it, it seems to me there's also the combination of mm. knowing that he's mistaken but doesn't want to admit it in a way that, you know, makes him look bad, say. Right. So we will get to this Shiab operator thing. And I certainly agree. He is clearly not going to sub, he is, seems determined not to substantively address your critique, which so far as I can tell is the only serious critique out there. Um, right. And, and it's likely to be the only serious critique out there. Just, just, you know, given the content of the material that it's, um, you know, but there doesn't, yeah, I, I don't see why anyone else would need to have another substantive critique, uh, past ours. And if people are wondering, well, why are we taking him seriously then if, if no one's bothering to critique it and he, he himself doesn't even have quite the formal credentials? I mean, he's not, it's not a peer reviewed journal he's published it in. He's, he's never taught. I don't, I don't know that he's ever, uh, I mean, beyond what you would do. Well, maybe he was a postdoc and who knows what he did. But, but anyway, people may be wondering why take it seriously if he's defining himself as an entertainer. Um, uh, and, I think the answer is he has taken great pains to get it taken seriously and actually has managed to get a number of physicists, including important ones, to kind of participate in the project in a certain sense. I mean, there's a, a very important physics podcast by a guy named Brian Keating, takes him very seriously, has him on, arranges to have him on with other serious physicists who seem to treat him respectfully, Lee Smolin. I mean, they didn't really get into Eric's theory, uh, but, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, Eric, uh, I, I heard him quote, uh, almost like a blurb for his theory from Frank Wilczek, Nobel laureate, physicist. So I, I, I want to, I want to save this for the end. We can get into later, like how, uh, 
he manages to to uh, get taken as seriously as he does if you think uh, his work doesn't merit that. It's a fascinating question. But I want to explain to people, we're, we're not just like, I, I didn't just want to, uh, you know, let somebody take pot shots at somebody that nobody else is taking seriously. Anyway, that's that's not what's happening. And, and, and that is an interesting fact in itself, the role of some of these podcasts in, in getting people taken uh, seriously. Um, so... Uh, another quick footnote. He, he, what he would say, partly by way of being devil's advocate, he says the reason he keeps releasing these things on April 1st is he wants to make April 1st like an official day when you get to, um, uh, publish or talk about unpopular ideas because he thinks there's not enough of that. Because again, a big, uh, part of his worldview is that good ideas are systematically suppressed. He has this acronym, DISC, the Distributed sure. Idea Suppression Complex. He says he has been a victim of that repeatedly. His brother has been. His wife has been. Uh, both his brother and his wife are academics. Um, and, uh, and, and so he thinks April 1st, uh, you know, is, 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 uh, a day to, to fight that, I guess, in some sense. So with that interruption over, um, unless there's something else you want to say, maybe we should get into the physics and, and talk about what a grand unified theory would be and what approach he takes. Yeah. So actually, just to just to wrap up this disc idea, I mean, so now in light of the recent events, it's pretty clear to me that all that jargon and 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 um, uh, all the ideas that he's trying to establish and push with the disc and the suppression, it's really self-serving, you know. So I mentioned uh, also on the Decoding the Gurus podcast that. We couldn't get our paper on the archive, and then Eric tried to use that against us. Uh, we should that, say the know, archive but, is a preprint. Uh, it's something where you submit a paper that may eventually sub- be submitted to a journal. You just want, it for the record, to get it dated. Okay, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so he uses it against us in that clubhouse recording that we couldn't even get it on the archive. But on the other hand, Eric is all about. Why do we even need the archive uh, to validate our work? It's a mm-hmm. gatekeeper, and, and he's against. So clearly, you know, he's against gatekeepers when it serves his purposes, but he's for gatekeepers when it's uh, you know work that critiques his work. Uh, so, so it just sort of shows you that he's not really being, uh, uh, you know, uh, faithful to 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 the ideas that he's touting, um, and you know. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I gather your view is that it wasn't accepted because it wasn't a paper about a paper. It was a critique of at that point a video lecture. That's I mean, right. you, because other stuff of yours has gone on the archive. It wasn't. Of it course. wasn't that you, that you don't personally qualify. That's right. That's right. It, it just the the moderators. Uh, you know, it was unfortunate they didn't really give a um, precise reason. They were very vague. Uh, you know, I guess that's the way they are. But. Uh, basically, if you read between the lines of what they wrote back, it's essentially because they didn't think the thing we were critiquing, critiquing was substantive enough to warrant uh, a critique that that would be suitable for the archive. Okay. So, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, on to grand unified theories, grand or unified field theories or whatever. Uh, Eric calls this a theory of everything. I mean, now what I've heard traditionally is that what a unified theory of physics would do is is unify uh the explanation of four forces gravity 
which is general relativity is our, our current explanation. Uh, and, and then, um, electromagnetism, which includes light and stuff. And then, uh, the, the strong force and the weak force, which are things that operate at the very level of very small particles, subatomic particles and, 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 and that kind of thing, right? Uh, I gather one is attractive and one is repulsive, maybe, or maybe I have that wrong. If you're nodding your head, maybe I have it right. But, uh, uh, looks like I'm not, I may not have that. Well, right. gravity is attractive. Uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, gravity is attractive. Electromagnetism depends on the sign, you know, positive and you know, light charges uh, uh-huh. uh, repel. Opposite charges attract. Um, I don't have enough intuition about the strong and the weak force to to, to uh, think about in terms of uh, attraction or repulsion. Um, uh, you know, th- okay. there's a mathematical structure, but I, I'm not sure if that's the right way to think about it. Okay, so. Uh, so that's one thing you hear is, is it would, it would unify these four things. Sometimes you hear it put like it would unify general relativity and quantum physics. I guess the idea being that quantum physics kind of pervades those other areas, right? Or something, but you, you, you hear it put various ways. How, how do you, uh, well, how do you describe what a unified field theory would do and, 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 and what do you think Eric's conception of what it should do is? Sure. Yeah. So I think maybe a way to think about this is to think about a, a two-dimensional grid. So on the on the x-axis, you would have the four forces, gravitation, electromagnetism, strong and the weak. And on the y-axis, you'd have classical physics and quantum physics. Okay. So the current state of physics is as follows. So, so a theory of everything would basically unify all four forces together so that there would be, you know, one coherent structure from which all four emerge. And then you would also uh, make the theory quantum because, uh, you know, the universe is fundamentally uh, governed by quantum physics. And so we would like all four forces to be described by the laws of quantum mechanics. Now, the current state of physics is as follows. Uh, we know how to unify three out of the four, uh, electromagnetism, strong and weak, and we know how to make them quantum. That's what the standard model does. Okay. Okay. And uh, we also have Einstein's theory of gravity. So that's gravitation, but only at the classical level. Famously, we don't know how to uh, make a quantum theory of gravity, or at least in a way that, you know, satisfies all the things that we would need for it to, you know, be well-behaved and, and be called a theory of everything. So, um, but you know, there are various different approaches. So you could try things like, let's just try to make gravity quantum in isolation. So you have things like quantum gravity, loop quantum gravity. Uh, you can try to unify everything, which is what string theory is trying to do. Uh, but string theory has had its challenges. And I don't know enough about string theory to go into the detail. But, you know, string theory is sometimes one of the most ambitious attempts because it tries to... Uh, do this horizontal unification of all the forces and the vertical unification of getting everything quantum. Now, Eric's theory, okay, it's, um, so, so how does it fit into this, this matrix here? Eric's theory, um, isn't quantum. So it, in some sense, it doesn't even qualify as a theory of everything because a theory of everything would unif, would have the horizontal and vertical integration. Eric's theory is purely classical. What it would try to do, if it were to succeed, would be to have just the horizontal integration where you have all four, uh, forces stemming, you know, unified together. And so in Eric's theory, he presents a set of equations from which you're supposed to get the Einstein equations, the Maxwell equations, and the Dirac equation, which uh, are sort of the ingredients of all these different forces. So Maxwell is electromagnetism, and then Dirac, uh, his equations, 
kind of encompass, well, they're relevant to strong and weak, uh, or, or wait, they're like electro weak or what? What is Dirac? <laughs> yeah. So I should, maybe I should, I should have said Yang Mills instead of Maxwell. Yang Mills is actually a generalization of Maxwell, but yeah, so he wants to get okay. Einstein, which is gravity. Yang Mills, which, uh, uh, I mean, essentially would, would wrap up the, all the other ones. Um, when you have also, uh, matter fields quarks, then you also have what's called a spinner. So you have the, uh, the Dirac equation. So, so they're, they're not, everything's not, things aren't so cleanly separated, but, but basically these, these equations have sort of all the different ingredients that, that yeah. appear in the standard model and therefore, uh, describe the other forces. So he's saying, and first I should say, I, I as for the, uh, you note in your paper, uh, that he, uh, he failed, one of his big failures is to account for quantum mechanics. Uh, th- that's something that from the beginning he was saying, I think was not an asp- he, aspiration of his, I mean, uh, he, he said, I think the current generation is mistaken to think that they're calling, is, that they are being called to quantize gravity. He's not trying to quantize gravity, whereas everyone else seems to think that's necessary or something like that. And I gather there, I mean, Einstein might agree. Uh, Einstein also thought that Quantum physics ultimately wasn't uh, the interpretations of it weren't on the right path, and and he he was looking, I think, for an ultimately classical unified theory, right? So, in that sense, I mean, is one uh, is, is he is Eric kind of approaching it the way Einstein would? He thinks things are ultimately classical, or is it that even clear? Yeah, it's not exactly clear what exactly Eric believes, because basically nothing he's written is is very clear. Um, but if we're going to interpret the word theory of everything as it is used in practice, then Eric's theory does not satisfy that because it's not quantum. It's a separate mm-hmm. issue if you want to say, oh, I want to change the paradigm or I want to think about things in a different paradigm. But then you should just acknowledge that or, or, or say how your new paradigm differs from the old and not call your – not confuse your work with a theory of everything, which uh, in some sense necessitates – being quantum. I mean, a much more modest description of what he's trying to do is, is, you know, some kind of unification of these equations. Um, and just unifying the equations, you'd still have to, uh, uh, you know, do a lot of work to show that it applies, say, to our four dimensional world, things like that. He works in 14 dimensions. So, you know, there, that's a you know, lot. That are, seems like a right, lot to me. Right. I mean, that's not a problem uh, altogether just because string theory also has, uh, Different flavors of string theory also work with uh, higher dimensions, and so that's a very. On the other hand, thing. we should we should say that I think string theory is slowly falling into disrepute. Is it not? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I think obviously I think it asks. It depends on who you ask. I, yeah. I don't know if the string theorists think that. Uh, I'm I'm not in the community of people who uh, are for or against string theory. It's just sort of uh, sort of okay. like a cousin field, if you will. I, I sort of I sort of. I studied the mathematical aspects of quantum field theory, which is an ingredient of string theory. But, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I, I don't really, uh, I'm not qualified to t- talk that much about string theory. But, but yeah, there are certainly, it certainly is in disrepute among many physicists. You know, uh, you know, Peter White being one of them, and I, from the sound of it, it looks like uh, uh, also Brian Keating and, and certainly Eric Weinstein. Um, uh, so certainly, what Eric is doing is um, unconventional because he's taking his own approach, but uh, he's also very much overselling his work, both in terms of calling it a theory of everything, which uh, is undeserved, but also in the sense, in, in, in the raw technical sense, that he doesn't, um, he certainly doesn't accomplish very much. You know, and so, you know, I was looking over his his uh, write up uh, last night, and I think that the analogy I, I, I can use is that it very much reads like bad poetry. 
uh, you know, in the sense that sort of there, it's just, it's just, um, uh, there's, it's very discursive with, uh, and, and it just mixes lots of different styles of writing. There's technical parts, there's personal qualifications, there's, uh, analogies that aren't maybe always apt or just maybe more confusing and, 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 uh, poetic than they are illuminating. And it's just this kind of mishmash of all these different things. And there isn't a coherent statement about what's actually proven or true and what's false. So it's, it's just very inappropriate for scientific writing, but even from a, from a literary perspective, it's just, it's just very, uh, it, the execution was leaves much to be deserved. Well, well, I'm not, I'm not fit to judge poetry, but in my role of uh devil's advocate, I'll say he does, I think have a gift for metaphor. I, I mean, he's very good. He's a, he's a great conversationalist. And, and, and I mean, right. if you listen to like the Joe Rogan stuff and one part of it is his ability to just inject this kind of arresting metaphor or something or comparison into the conversation. And, you know, that's like an important part of thought. It's an important, I mean, it's even an important part of scientific thought in a certain sense, right? It's like coming up with ways to conceive of things. And I guess, uh, I don't, I don't want to get in the way of your talking about the theory itself, but at some point I want to ask you, maybe I might as well, is like, does his paper, does this, does it have that kind of value? In other words, a person reading through the paper who is a physicist and, and is, wants to think about this unification stuff seriously comes across some metaphor or some idea out of left field and goes, well, that's interesting and, and pursues it in a fruitful way. Does, does, does his work have that character to you? Certainly not to me, and I think to most people. I mean, let's be clear. Um, you know, scientists, mathematicians, writers, we all have different personalities. We have different styles. And there's no one correct way to write a scientific document. Right. It's just a question of are you explaining your ideas well and are you respectful of your audience, right? And to that extent, uh, if there are insights to be found in this paper, they are not well presented, at least given a reasonable time budget. You know, I already spent quite a bit of time dissecting his video. And so when I look at his paper, um, uh, you know, just like you, you're, you're trying to skim to get to the essential contents because, you know, it's, it's 69 pages. I don't have the time to read it line by line and try to ex- extract every little nugget out of it. But from sort of the typical cursory reading, you'd give something as a sort of a pre-reading, right? It doesn't meet the bar to me as something that I'm, I would expect to get uh, grand insights out of. Okay. So back to the theory. I mean, it sounds like he wants to, well, leaving aside the question of whether he succeeded, come up with some like equation or set of equations from which, uh, the, uh, Dirac equation and Einstein's equations and is it yang mills or mills yang, yang mills equation yang mills yang mills yeah. uh can be derived is that is that the idea like they would be entailed in the in the mathematical structure he would come up with because that seems to me that would be pretty impressive i mean i mean if That's these right. three right. if these three theories collectively it, even if in a kind of a vague way with overlapping bounds if they collectively encompass the four forces right like I'd be no, that would be really cool, right? But that's that's exactly this issue. It's sort of over promising because you know he writes down the equation, says that they're supposed to come out of it, and so that seems really cool. 
the problem with the equation is that it involves the Shiab operator. And what we pointed out in our paper was that this operator doesn't make any sense how he defines it. So, so in some sense, you can set up all the cool things that you want, but when the rubber hits the road, if, you know, your, your basic, uh, ingredients are nowhere to be found, then, um, um, you know, your cool idea was, was, you know, uh, can, uh, can vanish. Now I should say that, of course, there are, uh, you know, scientific theories often almost always have problems with them. Mathematicians will publish proofs that are flawed and then get corrected later. Um, so having an error isn't, isn't the, the, the fatal blow. The question is, is there something salvageable or does that error illuminate something? Is it still, is there still progress, right, to, to be made? And, uh, from what I can tell, there, you know, the error is, is such a kind of, uh, sometimes basic error that, you know, these two objects aren't isomorphic that, um, I, I don't see of any way of, of salvaging what's left over. You know, he just, uh, asserts something. That thing isn't true. And there wasn't enough built up so that the, 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 the things that remain are still somehow useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's not a very insightful, uh, is there, in other words, it's not like a program, right? There's typically scientific programs. A program is sort of like a vision of where you want to go. And there's, uh, various pieces, there's various directions, various milestones. Um, and so if there's one part of the program that's flawed or a dead end, you switch to another avenue. And from what I can see, geometric unity is not a well fleshed out program. So if there's just this, we should say that's what piece, he's calling this, his theory of geometric unity. That's right. That's right. And so, um, it's what I'm trying to say is that the burden is really on Eric to, uh, fix up his theory. Uh, I'm certainly not going to be spending my time and most other uh, serious mathematicians, physicists and physicists won't be spending their time trying to read between uh, the lines. Okay. So the, let's, let's talk a little more about the Shiab operator. That's S H I A B. Now it's a it's a it's an acronym he came up with. It refers to ship in a bottle, and there's I think no doubt that it's pretty central to his edifice because you know he uh, he arranged to be on Joe Rogan the day after he published the paper. Okay, he set up the date. He apparently said to Rogan, you know they're they're close, and he said I, I I'd like to be on your show. I'm going to upload this thing April first. And he was on the April 2nd show talking about it, and he called up these videos, and people can find them at the URL, uh, pullthatupjamie.com, which is a Rogan reference that Rogan fans will get. But, um, and the videos, uh, have a ship in a bottle. Okay. So th- th- it, it sounds, you know, that's what the first two videos are just showing two different kinds of ships going into a bottle. I don't understand them, but he seems to think that this, Shiab thing is important. Now, as you, as you, as you note, apparently in his Oxford lecture, was it Oxford or Cambridge? Uh, Oxford. It was Oxford. Um, I may have said Cambridge. I don't know, but, but, uh, he, um, his 2013 lecture, which you were basing your, uh, initial critique on, he, he doesn't allude to any shortcomings with a Shiab operator. He doesn't say, I can't remember how I derived this or what its details are or anything. Um, he, then you point out this problem, like, wait, this Shiab operator thing doesn't work. Then in his paper published after your critique, he does say, you know, 
I don't remember how I got this. I'm trying to reconstruct it, and I don't... And, and it, it isn't just he doesn't remember the derivation. I mean, he doesn't have the details on the operator itself, right? Is that... It's like, he just says, there's this operator... Here, there is a operator that will play a certain role, but he doesn't give you what the details of it are, right? That's right. That's right. He basically admits defeat. I mean, he sort of sets up all, all these, uh, you know, what are called isomorphisms, um, and... Uh, uh, you know, I, haven't, I, I didn't look at it that carefully just because once he disqualified himself so clearly, it didn't make sense for me to sort of absorb all the details to figure out precisely its relationship with other things which are now sort of invalidated. But yeah, I mean, he, he sort of, you know, has a, a long set of equations or, or intended equalities. And then at some point he says, well, uh, the Shia operator, I guess, is supposed to complete this part, but uh, okay. I've lost the notes. I no longer ha- know how to do it, which is obviously very disappointing, especially in light of the fact that prior to the paper coming out, he was very um, uh, assertive and aggressive about his theory being taken seriously, uh, sort of making fun of people that, you know, why should I have to write up a paper? Just watch my video and you'll understand everything. So it really, it, it actually, it does contradict sort of his, his attitude that he previously had before writing the paper where it made it seem like, you know, uh, there weren't any loose ends. Yeah. So, um, again, I'd say I can, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm older than he is and, and I'm, I'm, I can well imagine there was something you did understand clearly, uh, in your twenties that you no longer can, uh, reconstruct. That's not inconceivable. But in any event, he, he admits now, uh, that he can't kind of deliver for the time being. He says he's going to try, look for more notes and so on. So on this business of what an operator is, there's, there's, uh, first of all, uh, it sounds like something that has input and output, just the word. And, and that's something that mathematical functions in general have, right? It's like, uh, Y equals three X means you, you provide the input X, you get the output Y. Is, is, is that, true of an operator and is that for practical purposes all we need to know right now that it, it, it does that kind of thing yeah so in mathematics an operator is just something that maps uh as you said certain inputs to outputs um you know when we first learned mathematics we learned about mathematical you know arithmetical operations so an arithmetical operation is an operation on on numerical inputs so you know you know how to add two numbers get another number multiply two numbers get another number uh but uh, math gets more abstract as you go along. So you can have operators on things like functions, right? So like the derivative is an operator. It takes one function to another function, right? Mm-hmm. So the price of a stock is a function. And then the operator that says, oh, take the current price minus the price of the previous day. That's another function. So that's an operator from function to functions. And the Shiav operator is also an operator. It acts on something called uh, Lie algebra value differential forms. So you'll only know that if you studied mathematics uh, quite a bit. But it's an operator. It maps something to something, and uh, he fails to construct that operator. Okay. Now, there's um, an interesting wrinkle here. Is that uh, you? You you say that among the problems with his Shiab operator is that it overlooks a required complexification step. Um, omitting that you write, I'm quoting you. Omitting this step. I mean, this is in your summary on uh, on. Uh, on on the the blog or the summary of the paper, but this is what you say in the paper. Uh, so omitting uh, uh, this step, the comp- complexification step, creates a mathematical error, but including it precludes having a physically sensible quantum theory. That sounds like a pretty killer objection. The um, 
what is it possible? So is comp, what, what is that? Is it possible to put in layperson's term? Like what is a required complexification step? I mean, in yeah. other words, to me, this sounds like something that would be missing in the derivation of an, of the operator, but apparently he doesn't provide the derivation anyway. I mean, so, but, so this is actually something missing in the operator itself. Essentially, you know, because the thing is that when I wrote that, we only had the video lecture to go off of, right? And, and, uh, even there, he was very, very terse about how he defined it. I basically had to parse the words he was saying because he didn't write what he actually, he didn't write the details. He just said it. And then I had to parse what he said. And if I parsed what he said, what he said was basically just wrong. But it is right if you do this complexification step. So it, it, in some sense, it was almost right. So in other words, uh, it, it could have been right if he just added this other step, which he failed to include and which he never mentions at all in his lecture. So it sounds to me like a pretty glaring, uh, you know, oversight that he, you know, just, uh, neglected. Um, so I don't, does that answer your question in terms of? Yeah, the I, I of the guess. Uh, I, I mean, to the extent that I'm capable of comprehending any of this, yes. The the um uh, and then when you say, but including it precludes having a physically sensible quantum theory. That sounds like kind of quite a claim on your part. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, whoa, uh, that's uh, a that's a sweeping statement. Yeah, yeah. So so it's most likely that he just uh. Well, I don't know. The thing is that because he, he seems to be doing other things in his write-up and he hasn't explained what the relationship between his write-up and his video is. So that's something that's in Eric's court. But based on what he, on the video, um, it seems most likely that he just omitted the complexification step. And so he's just mathematically dead in the water. And so we were being charitable and said, okay, what if you actually add this complexification step? Let's give him some charity. Okay. So a mathematical error is the most egregious kind of error because it's a no-go. You're just logically flawed. You can't go any further. Now, this uh, physics error, uh, we basically quoted a paper of Witten, which talks about complexification in quantum field theory. But if you unpack what the argument is saying, basically, if you complexify, um, what happens is there's something called a Lagrangian or a Hamiltonian or, or an energy in physics. And in physics, you want the uh, energy to be bounded from below. Otherwise, the physics is pathological. And if you complexify, you basically don't have this lower bound. It can be uh, positive. Could, the values of your energy can be from plus and uh, between minus infinity and plus infinity. And so it leads to pathological physics. Now, that's not as solid of a uh, of an objection as a mathematical objection, but it is an objection nevertheless. So if you really want it to be ultra, ultra, ultra charitable, you could say, okay, maybe you should complexify. You have this physics problem. That maybe if you reinterpreted uh, much of physics, you could wiggle your way through it. But sort of, um, you, you know, on the face of it, based on conventional physics, if you have this sort of unbounded from below energy, you're in big trouble. So uh, that's what that's what we meant by not having a sensible, uh, okay. you know, physical. By theory. the way, what is pathological physics? It sounds dangerous. <laughs> what does that term uh, mean? In that context? Um, uh, let's see how. Um, uh, you know, how are the ways in which physics can be pathological? Uh, you know, things can be infinite. Um, uh, you know, so, uh, so in other words, just in, just clearly incompatible with perceived reality. Is that what pathological means? It leads you to, to, to a view that is clearly not the case or? Yeah. Basically you violate certain, uh, principles, right? That, you know, we, you know, something like, uh, I mean, this isn't, this isn't the objection at hand, but you could say, oh, we believe that the speed of light is, uh, is a speed limit. And so if, if, if your theory predicts, uh, that that's not the case, then it's in violation of, 
of, uh, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity. So we, we ax that theory. Now, the thing is that, of course, physical theories are not, you know, logical truths, right? So mm-hmm. that, that's the sense in which a physical, um, a physical violation doesn't have the same level of certainty as a mathematical violation. I see what so, you mean by that. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah, but again, like, you'd have to be ultra charitable to extend charity to Eric because not only would he, to overcome this objection, not only would he have to get his own theory correct, but he'd also have to reformulate our very accepted foundations of physics to overcome these things. So, I mean, there's only, I mean, how many times, you know, do you want to uh, move the buck, right? So, so I mean, it's, uh, it's up to, to you, you know, or anyone else, of course, but but sort of the, the point is he, there is this uh, currently physically nonsensical consequence that he has if he complexifies. That's okay. the objection. Yeah. So, um, so that's your main, and I've heard you say this is in a way your central objection. It's the one you're, you're most, that's most kind of rigorous. You feel, uh, particularly confident of it. There, there are several other objections. One is the choice of gauge group. Again, gauge theory is a thing, and apparently, uh, now, now was gauge group kind of, uh, or gauge theory very central to your dissertation? Is it, is it uh, very closely related to those equations you did your dissertation on? Yeah, that's right. I mean, my, my, uh, um, my, my PhD dissertation was basically in the subject of gauge theory. Okay. And gauge theory is what underlies, you know, the standard model and much of particle physics. So it's very central in, in all of these things. Okay. So you're right. The choice of gauge group for GU, that is, uh, geometric unity, the theory, uh, Eric's theory, naively leads to a quantum gauge anomaly, thereby rendering the quantum theory inconsistent. Any straightforward attempt to eliminate this anomaly would make the Shiab operator impossible to define uh, as opposed to just undefined, which you're saying it is, uh, which you earlier said it is, uh, compounding the previous objection. In other words, the objection you just made. Um, anything you want to uh, – I'm kind of reading this for the record. I, I don't think we can expect a lay audience to totally grasp uh, them, but is there anything you want to – say by way of uh, maybe for the benefit of a lay audience or by way of elaboration? Sure, yeah. So the second objection has to do with, uh, uh, previously I mentioned how you should make your theories quantum. So if if Eric wasn't interested in making his theory quantum, this would not be an objection. But presumably this theory, if it is going to be called a theory of everything, should be made quantum. And if he did do that, there would be this obstacle, uh, what's known as a chiral anomaly, and if he tried to fix that in the most straightforward way by changing the gauge group, which would eliminate this anomaly, that would uh, make the Shiab operator undefinable, whether or not you complexify. So so he's got this kind of really bad situation where if he wants his theory to be a theory of everything, he has to quantize it. But the only straightforward way to fix that is to make the Shiab operator even more undefinable. So uh, that's the sense in which I uh, that line about uh, compounding the previous ob- objection mm-hmm. uh, referred to. And could he in principle escape some, from some of this criticism by just saying, I'm on the same page as Einstein. I still hold out hope that quantum physics will be shown to be so egregiously, not just incomplete, but maybe misleading uh, that we don't need to accommodate it. The, the world is ultimately classical and deterministic. Uh, I assume, I mean, I, I, I almost get the sense that maybe that is what he would say, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Uh, would that be and now I know your physics co-author is not here, of course. We should, we should say that. Even though you have published articles in like, uh, you know, the, the Journal of Mathematical Physics and so on, uh, I assume, uh, the, 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 the guy working under the, the pseudonym Theo, uh, Polya 
did some of the heavy lifting here, but so just let me know if there's a question you don't want to answer. But um, in principle, could uh, could Eric use that escape hatch? Um, if he tried to, it would it it wouldn't make much sense because um, how do I want to say? If you're going to go that route and say, you know what, uh, I'm going to throw out quantum theory, and uh, because I think classical physics is sufficient, he wouldn't even have to. Um, I say there are so there would be so many problems, or that would be such the scope of that would be so large that um, this introduction of GU uh, is in some sense a red herring because you wouldn't need all these extra structures like the Shia vibrator, blah blah blah. He would just be able to start with current classical physics, current quantum mechanics, and explain why we don't need quantum physics. So in some sense, this proposal to ignore quantum physics is out of scope in the sense that, um, uh, you know, when you're working on a problem, you want to isolate the most important aspects of a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't need all these other auxiliary structures, this 14-dimensional observers, uh uh, spinners, blah, blah, blah. If he really just is focusing on disentangling classical and quantum physics, he could start from that overarching theme. Um, so it's, it's very disingenuous to try to embed that into, um, uh, you know, his theory of physics. Maybe an analogy would be like, you know, maybe you're talking about, uh, evolutionary biology, blah, blah, blah. And at some point your theory goes awry and you just invoke God out of the blue. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like, well, wait a minute. If you were interested in some uh, theological or metaphysical proposition, you should be isolating that and addressing that, not just smuggling that into your theory, right? So mm-hmm. in that sense, um, if that's really Eric's excuse, he really should be addressing the classical quantum distinction proper and not just be smuggling that in where it, it you know, there's, there is no sort of uh, explanation or justification for that at the moment. So even if his theory worked as stated, he would still need to explain to us why uh, he he doesn't need to address the quantum. But, you know, uh, he would still need to reconcile quantum and classical physics, basically. That's right. That's right. Which, which, uh, you know, that's that's going to be Which is enough work for one man, I would say. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So, okay, your third thing, the setup of of geometric unity asserts that it will have supersymmetry in 14 dimensions. That is, uh, you know, his theory is in 14 dimensions, apparently, something... I have trouble wrapping my mind around. But anyway, in 14 dimensions, adopting supersymmetry is highly restrictive. It implies that the proposed gauge group of geometric unity cannot be correct and that the theory as stated is incomplete. Uh, anything you want to say about that? I mean, I'm intrigued by this 14 dimensions thing because this is, you know, a, a huge number of dimensions is something this has in common with string theory. And I, I'm always like, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, it's like I can barely wrap my mind around Einstein saying, think of a four-dimensional continuum, right? In other words, I, I get that conceptually. Yeah, time is a dimension. But but then you say, imagine it as a kind of a space. And I'm just, I'm sorry. I can't even do that. <laughs> These guys are throwing in 10 extra dimensions. What what would that even mean? Or or is it that the, the, the 10 of them are supposed to kind of come out in the wash, so to speak? Like... When it's all done, we return to four. So, I mean, how does this, how does this work? Yeah. I mean, so, um, so first of all, I should say this, this, this objection in some sense is the, is the least significant, I want to say, because, um, you know, it's not even clear what Eric is doing exactly with supersymmetry. He, uh, he says he's using it at some point, 
in a video that's not in this geometric unity lecture, we, we put the timestamp in our paper. Uh, in his actual uh, April 1st paper of this year, he says something about he's not using supersymmetry. Um, but again, you know, since Eric is vague in sort of in all walks of this project, it's not clear whether he's using it or, or not. Do you trust the video or do you trust the write-up? Um, so, uh, so in that sense, you know, he may or may not be using supersymmetry if we are most charitable. It's just that if he were, then that, that is the objection. But of course, the other two objections are already very, very serious. So this is just another one to add to the pile, so to speak, um, to sort of cover all our bases. But, uh, so, so that's the nature of that objection. Um, but to go back to your thing about higher dimensions, I mean, you should think of these higher dimensions. I think maybe the, the best way to think about it is that they're internal degrees of freedom. So for example, you can think of an object and say it's temperature, right? Temperature is a number. So you could think of it as another dimension, but it's not a spatial dimension. It's just another number you assign to that object. So it's just right? a property. It's just a quantifiable property. Uh, in this analogy, yes. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, you can think of that also in terms of, of other objects. So for example, electrons have what's known as spin. Now it's not the mm -hmm. usual spin that you think of as a, a top spinning. It's just some internal, uh, what mathematicians would call a representation. So you have an internal space, uh, you have, uh, this is actually the origin of gauge symmetry, uh, uh, if you will. Uh, but anyways, so you have these internal degrees of freedom. They, they don't have spatial extent. And so, yeah, you could really think of it really indeed as a property, as, as, num as quantum numbers that you assign to these particles. Now that's not quite the same as having, uh, so I, I kind of cheated a bit because mm. there is a difference between these sort of, uh, gauge degrees of freedom or these, these sort of, um, symmetries arising, arising from the gauge group versus the, say, 10 extra dimensions that, that Eric is introducing. Um, they're, they're, they're different in some ways, but, but, uh, at the level of what we're talking about, you should just think of things as being sort of internal in some sense. Well, let me ask you this. Just, let's just, just thinking of it as math, okay? Like okay. 10 goes into the math, leave aside what it means physically. What does he get out of that in his theory? What does it make possible? Is there something it allows him to assert or derive that's useful? Yeah. I mean, this was something that wasn't very clear and it still isn't very clear. Um, so he's trying to do something, you know, elegant in terms of things called metrics and spinners. So it, the thing is in four dimensions. So in Einstein's theory of gravitation, you introduce something called a metric. A metric is just, uh, uh, the way you measure distances and angles. It turns out that you need 10 numbers everywhere to describe a metric. Um, uh, and, and, uh, that's because, well, if you have a four by four matrix that's symmetric, the, it's equal in your reflection, then you have 10 independent numbers. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where four plus 10 becomes 14. And when you add in these 10 extra dimensions, you can try to do various geometric constructions that, uh, may may have interesting properties. So that's that's the reason why Eric introduces these extra uh, 10. It's because he wants to consider the space of all uh, uh, metrics, and, and then he does various constructions on top of that. I mean, none mm -hmm. of this is earth-shattering. These are all very natural if you if you come from a differential geometric background, which both okay. Eric and I come from. So th there's nothing earth-shattering about, about any of this, but that's sort of... These are sort of all very natural things one might think of as, as a mathematician. Okay. Uh, and then your fourth, uh, main point is just that there are various technical details omitted, uh, uh, something we, I think we've already kind of gathered, uh, and you say this leaves many of the central claims un unverifiable. Um, so, uh, there's a few 
issues this raises. I mean, by the way, again, in his defense, nobody else has come up with a unified field theory that works right. Are people trying? He had a guy on his podcast who uh, says he's now a surf bum, but who, uh, who came up with one 15 years ago? A serious physicist, right? Uh, uh, I forget his name. Garrett BC. What's his name? Garrett BC. So that was a for real attempt, right? I mean, that I guess hasn't been greeted, uh, with hosannas, but people looked at it and, uh, well, it was a much more, well, I mean, it was a more serious attempt than Eric's. And actually, yeah, as far as I haven't looked at that work closely, I, I should at some point. Um, my impression is that that work was, uh, at least a, uh, how do I say, serious work insofar as, you know, there were none of the sort of sociological theatrics. What he did upload was a, uh, a properly written scientific document. Uh, there were flaws to be found. There's a, a string theorist named Jacques Dissler who wrote a response uh, uh, rebutting the claims there. So I think there were some errors found that, that were isolated. But, you know, what I'm saying is that that's, that's the way a scientific dialogue should proceed. You write up a, a proper paper and mm-hmm. people respond. This is nothing ordinary. People propose all kinds of things in physics that are later shown to be wrong. Um, so I don't know what's salvageable from uh, Lisi's ideas, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, it, it was a proper paper. There was a proper response. Um, and I'm sure I would learn something if I read Garrett Lisi's paper. Um, uh, I think in terms of this uh, uh, two by two grid that we were talking about earlier in terms of the, the forces and, and then the quantum, the classical, my understanding is that Garrett's theory doesn't deal with the quantum, so it isn't that kind of theory of everything. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be sort of what's called a uh, grand unification, which would be this horizontal uh, bringing of the force. But I'm not sure he even unifies gravity. So he introduces something called E8, which is this uh, so-called uh, exceptional Lie group. And, and his paper actually is a pun on that because his paper is called An Exceptionally Simple Theory of Everything. The simple refers to the fact that this group is what a mathematician would call mm-hmm. simple. So he uses E8 to sort of do this horizontal unification. So it's sort of similar in Eric's setting in the sense that he's doing a horizontal unification, not, not this vertical mm-hmm. classical to quantum. Okay. Sounds but, like but I may succeed. have, sounds like I may have earlier uh, used the term grand unified theory imprecisely, but too late to correct that. Leaving that aside, the, um, uh, let me, uh, by, by way of, uh, let me read you a sentence from Eric's paper, just just to again ask the question: like, does this uh, does this sound reasonable insofar as it goes? And is it the kind, or and or is it the kind of thing that a person might, a physicist might look at and go, oh, interesting way to set it up? So the reason I choose it is it's at the very beginning of his discussion of the Shiab operator, which is clearly very important. And and it's just this sentence. I don't understand it, but I'm wondering, does it make sense insofar as it goes? He writes, uh, in essence, gauge theory and relativity have been disconnected because of the incompatibility of contraction and gauge covariance of terms within the action. Well, that sentence in isolation, uh, I'm not sure how to parse that. I mean, I feel like... Uh you know, uh, there needs to be more development for that to be okay. of, of, of substance. I, I, okay. The uh, next thing is, yeah. Okay. okay I, I won't keep, I won't continue yeah. in this vein. Um, but, but, and anyway, uh, the theory of everything, 
I did he, say he, bad poetry, so, so you know, it's, uh, that's kind of poetic, but I'm not sure if it's going anywhere. But go, yeah, Oh, he go ahead. gets more poetic yeah. than that. I mean, that, that, <laughs> okay. that doesn't have any metaphor uh, in it, so far as I can tell, um, which, again, he's very good at. Um, the uh, So nobody's come up with a theory of everything. As uh, I suggested earlier, my sense is that string theory is losing momentum. You know, it's more and more people are saying put up or shut up. Or, and just saying the theory is too liberal. It, there's just too many, you know, you can in principle reconcile it with too many things. Uh, the, uh, so basically, um, and I mean, it's an article of faith that unification is possible. Maybe it's not, right? Maybe the universe, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, like, there are people taking seriously the idea that, uh, we live in a um simulation. Okay, fine, whatever. But just for thought purposes, like, if that's the way the universe was set up, like, if you're setting up a simulation, you might say, okay, well, first of all, we need, you need to have space, physical stuff, rules that make it move. Okay, that's general relativity. That's gravitation, right? And then, and, and then you'd say, um, we're going to have beings in here and we want them to be able to perceive things. So we need to have like electro, like light rays bouncing around, electromagnetism, radio waves. So let's throw that in. And then something else, right? Uh, in other words, unification has worked so far. Uh, you know, uh, we keep unifying things. Electromagnetism was itself a unification. Of, of electricity and magnetism. Now it has been unified, I guess, with a weak force or something, but, um, it, it, it's, it's not clear that further progress is necessarily possible, right? That's an article of faith. Yeah. In some sense, this also, you know, you interviewed Sabine and I, and I think you talked about her, her book in, in your interview. Um, yeah, I mean, in some sense, um, physicists have been guided by this, uh, need for unification, I guess, both maybe from a psychological perspective and also from a beauty perspective. But, but you're right. There isn't, um, you know, there is no principle that says all these things should be unified. It's, it's, it really is an aesthetic wish, right? Uh -huh. uh, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, how do I say, well, I mean, the word unification is, is obviously ambiguous because we don't know what is going to be the candidate unifying structure from which mm -hmm. all these things emerge. Uh, of course, there are still problems in the sense that, you know, like gravity, we, we don't know how to make a quantum theory of gravity, which means that, you know, our, our classical theory of gravity, uh, due to Einstein, you know, breaks down in certain cases, you know, say inside a black hole, things like that. And so, so, um, even before unifying things, there are still sort of, uh, problems to be had with, which is just, you know, to quantize things, you know, this sort of vertical integration versus horizontal, uh, integration. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's, there, there yeah, I mean, I, I say, like, it's an interesting philosophical question of sort of like what, um, what are the forms of physical theories that are possible? You know, is there a sort of an irreducible complexity that we cannot, uh, get beyond? And if we also want to get more philosophical, um, you know, you asked me, you know, prior to our interview, you know, sort of, you know, say, you know, the relationship between mathematics and reality and, and sort of thinking about physics and math actually, uh, uh, 
uh, yields different insights or has have different problems in terms of a descriptive nature of reality. So, so if we if we want to go down that route, I, we could talk about sort of how how math differs in this regard in terms of a theory of everything. Um, so, you know, a, a physical theory of everything would merely be descriptive, right? You know, sort of we go out, we make measurements, we use mathematics to describe the different forces, and it's up to the job of physicists to sort of choose the right math and and choose the most simple theory that can explain what we observe. You know. There are, you know, going to be infinitely many theories that are consistent with the observations, right? And it's up to us to choose which theory sort of makes the most sense that is consistent with the observations, and that's sort of an aesthetic judgment. Um, so that's one, maybe one, one uh, interesting but, but, but thing, right? Doesn't there need to? I mean, if it's unification, whether you think of it as conceptual or mathematical, doesn't there, in some sense, need to be like a a distinct body, like an equation or set of equations, or a uh, conceptual principle from which all else flows, from which all, from which the, all of these four forces can be derived, right? I mean, that is inherent in the notion of unification, right? Yeah. So like, for example, let's look at, um, yeah, I, I think the problem is that unification is fake. So for example, in the standard model, so the standard model encompasses the electromagnetic force strong and weak. And, uh, and the, uh, the elect the electromagnetic and the weak are combined into what's called electroweak, and the gauge group of the standard model has different components. It's what's called SU3 cross SU2 cross U1. Let's not worry about what that means, but the gauge group has these different blocks. And one way in which you can talk about this, you know, unification is to have just one bigger group from which that sort of uh is larger than these different blocks. And somehow that would be more elegant because rather than having sort of three distinct blocks, you just have this one overarching structure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that's sort of a, that's an underdetermined thing. You know, what is this larger thing, right? This larger gauge group. That people have does, Eric, like, does Eric give us that? Does he, does he say, here's the set of equations and I just can't really show you how things flow from it? Or does he not do that? Well, he does write down his, his equations of motion that involve the Shia operator. It's just that those equations aren't well defined. So it just, it just kind of stops. But there. he does have these equations that he thinks will someday be vindicated. We will see how everything flows from these equations. Yeah, if he can get them to work, that seems quite uh, unlikely uh, at yeah. this point. Um, yeah. So, 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 how do I say? Um, yeah, I haven't thought about this. You know, sort of like, is there is like, you know, maybe it is the case that you know we'll just have all these disparate theories that work and maybe there isn't some, some, uh, elegant thing that simplifies them all. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, we're, we, we, we evolved on this planet in the way that we are. And w w who are we to demand that the laws <laughs> of physics, uh, should have this very nice, uh, parsimonious form. Um, yeah, who knows? Um, it has worked so far to, to a remarkable extent. Uh, unification, you know, uh, we, you know, boiling a lot of stuff down to simple laws in physics. Uh, it's an amazing accomplishment, but our luck could run out. Yeah. I mean, the standard model, if I have my dates correct, was sort of, you know, in its current form somewhere in the seventies and sort of we've been stuck for a long time now, uh, in terms of, uh, making further progress. And, you know, uh -huh. the standard model is also very Baroque in many ways. There's all these particles, all these funny constants and, you know, part of this, part of all the experiments that have been going on with the LHC and further developments in higher energy physics is to try to explain all these sorts of random pieces. But it's been sort of, 
quite unsuccessful so far in terms of, you know, at least from what I understand. And, yeah. you know, Sabine talks about that in her book. Um, um, in terms of a mathematical description of uh, a mathematical theory of everything, uh, we could talk about this uh, if you want to go down that route. But, you know, I think, I, I think it's useful to distinguish between sort of a mathematical theory of everything versus a, a physics theory of everything. A physics theory of everything would merely be some, somehow a parsimonious description that's, that's uh, both accurate and, and sort of inclusive, all inclusive in the sense that, you know, everything could be fundamentally emergent from this physical theory, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like physicists don't pretend that they can uh, understand the economy from, you know, the motion of atoms, right? But what, what they do claim is that, okay, well, the economy is made out of people, out of goods. Those are made out of atoms. So mm-hmm. sort of, at, you know, at a, at a, um, I don't know, at a philosophical level, at least, you know, everything could be explained in terms of atoms, even if that's computationally and, you know, uh, intellectually, uh, you know, uh, infeasible to do. But because everything boils down to atoms and subatomic particles, uh, if we had a theory of subatomic particles, everything would sort of emerge from that. So that's the sense in which you would have a theory of everything, even if it's not maybe the most useful and descriptive theory, right? Right. Um, Right. So the language Um, of physics in that scenario is a very inefficient way of talking about the economy, even if you understood all links and the language of economics would still, even if you understood it all, the language of economics would be a more uh, efficient language that's with right. which to speak about economic interaction. And and that's, that's right. one meaning of an emergent uh, kind of property, right? Like, you, you know, the, uh, but so, um, yeah. Uh, so, Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say, as opposed to say mathematics, so this is where things like Gödel's incompleteness theorems become yeah. interesting because because depending on how you think about a theory of everything, in some sense, the these fundamental results in in, in uh, logic and and formal systems precludes you from having a mathematical theory of everything. In the sense that you know, coming out of the work of of Gödel, we know that if you give me any uh, axiomatic framework satisfying certain properties. Then, uh, if your theory is consistent, meaning it has no contradictions, there are always going to be propositions that are, you know, true, but can't be proven within that formal system. So your, your, your formal system will always be incomplete. Okay. Uh, so, so uh, another, uh, uh, sort of a, a, a casual way of saying this is that, you know, you, you can't prove everything. Your, your, your formal system can't, uh, know with certainty or whether ever can't decide, uh, you know, if you give me a statement, whether it's true or false for every statement. So, so, uh, there, and that, and that will are, always include some true statements. That's right. Exactly. Th- that exactly. it can't tell you whether they're true or false. Yeah. Now all of these are quite subtle because you have to think about, okay, what, what do you mean by true if you couldn't prove it? So, so the way these things work is that, you know, um, you always have a stronger system that can show that something is true. But then, uh, your original system wasn't as strong as this more powerful system. So, like, so, like, for example, here's an analogy. Okay. So, if, if, uh, if you indulge me for a second. So, for example, let's, let's think of like the game of chess, right? So, you can imagine a game of chess where, uh, uh, you know, what, what is the goal of chess? The goal of chess is to, uh, get your opponent's king into checkmate, right? And, you can ask questions like, well, what pieces do I need to use to accomplish a checkmate? Right. And so, uh, 
you know, if I have a king and a knight, I can't checkmate. But if I have a king and a rook, I can checkmate, right? And the nice thing about a checkmate is it doesn't really make reference to uh, the particular pieces you need. Checkmate just simply means that your king is under attack and it has nowhere to go, right? So um, you can think of uh, in this analogy, you know, um, you know, the more pieces you have available, the uh, easier it is to checkmate. And likewise, the, the more axioms you have, the more powerful your axiomatic framework, the more powerful, um, uh, the, the more things you can prove. So what ends up happening is, in practice, here's what happens. Say you want to start out with a formal system. Here are my axioms of mathematics, and I want to start deriving all the possible things I can derive from that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are going to be some statements which are true in the sense that, you know, if you add more axioms, if you add more pieces to the, to, to your, you know, to your chess game, so to speak, you can do more with it. You can prove, you can, uh, prove more, but this statement, which you could actually already formulate in the, in the original weaker system doesn't know it's true. So, so that's the sense in which there are things which are true. Okay. You can formulate them in the original system, uh, but the original system doesn't know about it. You need a larger system to sort of, uh, 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 prove that system. So it's like sort of like this infinite recursion. No matter what system you have, there are going to be things which are true, at least relative to some higher system, but which the lower system doesn't know. And so there's, there's sort of never a final ending point where you're going to say, aha, I have finally gotten my complete formal system that can decide whether every statement is true or false. That's sort of one of the consequences of this, this, uh, Godel incompleteness theorem. So does that have, implications for our ability to know the physical world that are easy to articulate in a simple way? I mean, you've been, I may have missed uh, some of the implications of what you've already said, but uh, is that, is, is that kind of what you're getting at? Um, well, actually I can give a very concrete example of actually what's really cool about, about all this is that you can actually come up with very concrete statements about, uh, very simple mathematical objects that can't be proven in the sense that I just talked about, but which are true. Are okay, undeniably so, so, true, intuitively yeah, true. Yeah. So, so if you want a concrete physics example, here's one. So, so again, just a little short detour. So let me start with a little, a little puzzle. So, uh, suppose I asked you the following. All right. How many, imagine I have a, a room of N people where everybody knows everybody. And for each pair of persons, they either both like or dislike each other. Okay. Now, so, so how there's, many, there's no asymmetry in, there's no asymmetry, right? Uh-huh. Now the question is how many people do I need in this room such that no matter what the arrangement of liking and disliking are, there's going to be three people that all like or dislike each other. There's going to, I don't know. You're going to have to tell me the answer. <laughs> the answer is six. Okay. okay. It's not five, and here's why it's not five. So if you had five people... <laughs> I, I, was, I didn't guess five, but I'm happy okay. to hear why I would have been wrong. Sure. But it's, it's, it's easy to visualize. If I had five people, right? Yeah. That, you can imagine the following arrangement. Have five people stand in a circle, right? And every person uh, likes their two nearest neighbors, yeah. but they dislike their two opposite neighbors. Okay? And you can see that any triangle you draw will always have to connect two non-adjacent neighbors. And therefore, uh, you will always have a situation where um, uh, you will have a both a 
uh, like and dislike because a triangle will connect two adjacent people and two non-adjacent people. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and you you can't. This argument fails now with six people. Um, so but that doesn't so, co- qualify as proof in a mathematical sense. The fact that you well, can you can kind of show it deductively in a sense, but not. Yeah, you would have to prove it for six, but I, I was showing you why it doesn't work for five. Okay. You'd have to show something for six. So, uh, I mean, the, the simple way to do it is just to draw all possible configurations of six people, but that's quite tedious. You, you might want to come up with an elegant argument. But, but, uh, this is actually a really cool, uh, phenomenon. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, this goes by the name of Ramsey's theorem or Ramsey numbers. And what this is basically saying is that, uh, a pithy way of describing this is that with enough data, there will be patterns. Or mm-hmm. even more poetically, with enough stars in the sky, you'll have constellations. Okay. And the way to think of that, this is if you have enough people in a room, no matter what the arrangement of like and dislikes are, then you'll always be able to find a large sub collection of people which all like or dislike each other. Okay. So now if you raise it to like, what if I want 10? I want, I want to find 10 people that all like or dislike, uh, each other. Mm-hmm. Then for a sufficiently large number, no matter how you arrange the likes and dislikes, Right. Mm-hmm. There has to be 10 people that either like or dislike. Right. Okay. I know that's sort of, that's, and that's then sort what of if cool... we, what if we add the condition that you and Eric Weinstein are both in the room? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm guessing our, our opinions are pretty mutual at this point. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah. Okay. So, so, so uh, anyways, to wrap this up, I want to say that there's a version of this that is true, but you can't deduce from the rules of arithmetic, even though it's true. And so this is one of these concrete, what's really cool, this goes by the name of Paris-Harrington theorem. There are these kind of, kind of combinatorial problems, which you can state, and which are true in the sense that if you use, uh, the, uh, certain operations in mathematics, you can prove it, but using arithmetic, you can't prove it. So this is the kind of, you asked about like, well, does this have a concrete application to physics? Yeah. I mean, okay, maybe you call it physics, maybe you don't, but it's, it's very concrete and, and it doesn't follow from, from the okay. uh, simple arithmetic, yeah. So I guess, I mean, to me, a lot of this, including Gerdel's theorem and, and the uh, the failure of everyone to come up with a, a, a unified theory to date, um, uh, you know, gives me grounds for trying to, again, be somewhat charitable to Eric. I mean, it's good for people to be trying. Uh, what's... I mean, let's, let's talk about some things that you find frustrating about his approach outside of the realm of the, of the theory. Like, you've mentioned that he's made very great claims for it. Now, the paper itself, and we should say he doesn't want to call it a paper, he wants to call it a draft. And that itself is a sign that the draft itself has its elements of humility. I mean, he describes himself as an entertainer. It's kind of, you know, on the other hand, he has repeatedly outside in, in other contexts made immense claims for this and called it a theory per se of everything. And, um, is that part of, uh, is that part of the frustration? Um, yeah, certainly I think, um, the whole, I think certainly a large part of the frustration is the whole sociological layer uh, around the, the scientific work. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I would call his qualifications humility so much as it is, um, some weird combination of, um, I don't even know what to call it, but, um, personal exemptions slash, uh, 
uh, obfuscation. I don't, I don't know. I, I would, I would think humility would take a much different form than, than, than <laughs> the way which he wrote. It's yeah. certainly not the word you would use to describe all of his behavior yeah. uh, or all the things he said about this. Uh, what I mean is there's some kind of disclaimers in a certain sense in, in, in right. the paper that, that, where, you know, a lot of it's a work in progress and, and, you know, and, and, and so on. And, and, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, part of the disclaimer was that he says this is a work of entertainment, that it's copyright, that you can't be built upon that. I mean, that, that already makes it very hard to be charitable in terms of, oh, you know, he really wants to share this openly with people. Cause if he did, I don't, that disclaimer doesn't yeah. make any sense. And I also want to say that, you know, part of the work of being a scientist is making your work of, uh, useful to other people. And certainly in mathematics, even if you have partial results or partially fleshed out ideas, then what you do is say, form a precise conjecture, right? So, mm-hmm. so the most famous open problem in mathematics is, is the Riemann hypothesis. And it's a very well formulated problem. You know, it, it doesn't take too much math to understand the formulation. Okay. So if Eric were serious about his theory, he should do similar things. In 69 pages, he could have, you know, a handful of things where, okay, this is precisely the problem. I would be happy, you know, and implicitly or explicitly, I would be happy if somebody else worked on it, say, right? There, there are plenty of, um, that, that's very typical in, in, in scientific writing. Yeah. You, you write a paper, you solve a problem and you tell the reader what's left to be done, right? You're mm-hmm. handing the baton to someone else. I, I don't get at all the sense that Eric is behaving that way. And sometimes he's very defensive and possessive about uh, his, his work. So, uh, now I know you've also found frustrating something we alluded to, uh, which is, you know, he, well, maybe you haven't said it quite like this, but you tell me. He has access to a bunch of important podcast platforms, ranging from like Joe Rogan at the kind of popular level. That's the most, uh, important podcast in a sense in the world in terms of, you know, prominence and audience to a kind of a more specialist, uh, podcast, the Brian Keating podcast and kind of somewhere in between this Lex Friedman, uh, podcast that he's on, which is important and, and, you know, uh, more focus on science and tech than say Joe Rogan's. Um, and you know, it's, it's not just that he goes on there. They all, you know, he's on, he seems to be on very good terms with these people. As I said, he, he just emailed Joe Rogan and said, I want to be on April 2nd because that's when I'm unveiling my thing and it happens, you know. And, uh, and, and, and Brian Keating, uh, who again is a physicist, uh, seems very deferential to him. Um, and when you add, uh, and again, Eric, uh, he's, he's, there are some, uh, physicists, uh, that he knows who have said, you know, at least vaguely nice things about this effort. Um, uh, it may or may not be within the realm of expertise. Um, you know, whereas you, you're not getting invited on these podcasts, right? It, it, and it's like, and it's a safe bet you won't be. I, I mean, in fact, uh, in that, uh, clubhouse clip I played, the voice of Brian Keating, who was in there with Eric in that clubhouse, uh, can be heard supporting Eric's claim that because the paper has one anonymous co-author, he shouldn't talk about it. Uh, I don't know if you, you picked up on that, but yeah, if you listen to that's it, right. yep. you can hear Brian Keating chiming in in support of that. That's and that's right. kind of amazing for, for a respected I, physicist. I completely agree. That's right. Yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Well, I should say, I, 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 I uh, 
I just, I, it seems, yeah. So I actually, in some sense, I think Brian Keating has become the more interesting person for me than Eric. Cause I feel like, okay, I've, uh, you know, uh, understood Eric for a while now. And I, I, I still don't understand Brian Keating's attitude towards all this, uh, especially because he is an established a scientist. Um, I think he's the only academic slash scientist who's supporting Eric. You, you mentioned there were other physicists that were praising well, him. I don't know if I, I would call I, it that. I, I recently heard yeah. Eric say he has taped a podcast with Fred Wilczek, I think for the portal, and he gave us a quote that sounded glowing, uh, having to do with Eric's theory from Frank. I've had Frank on my show too. He's a, he's a, he's a good okay. guy. Um, and, uh, and as I said, I mean, Brian Keating, like, he has Eric on with Lee Smolin, respected kind of visionary physicist. And they don't talk about the uh, the thing per se. Uh, but I know that uh, Eric went to Perimeter, which is Lee's place, and uh, at some point in the, uh, for some conference or something. I mean, he's, he's managed to be, for a guy who's never been an actual academic uh, physicist, uh, pretty well. Although, again, he has a PhD in math. Um, he, he's... Uh, He's pretty well connected among physicists. And, 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 you know, part of it makes sense to me. And he's got an influential podcast. He knows these podcasters. I mean, for example, Frank Wilczek came on my show when he had his book come out. He also went on Lex Friedman's, which is more important, with all due humility, more important than my show for these purposes. And look, for all we know, Eric set that up for him, right? And, and I mean, I'm not casting aspersions on anyone's motivations. I'm conveying that. In the new world of like power podcasts, it's a form of power to to be well embedded in that, it, it be thoroughly sure. embedded in that. Is all Although I'm uh, on this specific, I'm a little surprised if Frank Wilczek said anything positive about Eric's work. I'll, I'll wait. In to isolation, that the quote is impressive, and if it's misleading, I'm sure Frank will be upset. But okay. um, but uh, it it uh, geez, where did I um? What podcast did I hear that on? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out okay, after sure. the thing well, and, and send you the link. Yeah. But, um, but, but, yeah, but to get, like, for example, you know, his, his, I mean, um, so I want to say a few things. Yeah. In some sense, the only reason it was worth writing the response favorite was because, uh, Eric was getting so much attention from this theory, which didn't make any kind of scientific sense. Um, if, you know, look, there, there, Crackpots are a dime a dozen in the physics world, and I wouldn't go out of my way to write up this paper if, you know, if Eric was, you know, some obscure person, uh, promoting his, his theory. Um, I think, uh, so in the case of Brian Keating, it seems that, you know, um, you know, he's able to talk with Lee Smolin and all these other people, uh, Max Techmark, Sabine Hossenfelder, because Brian set that up, and I'm not so, sh- and also Stephen Wolfram, I'm not so sure how, actually supportive they are it's sort of look they're on a podcast they have to be civil and polite and i I feel like a lot of it was orchestrated uh, especially because they don't have the right expertise to to go into the technical details and -hmm. you know uh, and that's also consistent with the fact that when our paper came out uh you know brian keating has pulled the plug in terms of either bringing us on or having other people uh, uh confront eric with the technical details you know i'm sure those other physicists can look at our paper and and at least uh uh uh, recap some of the technical details. But anyways, so I think Brian Keating has a lot to do with sort of the theatrics of the significance of the work. Um, and I'm not sure why exactly he, he's done that. Uh, in terms of Joe Rogan and Lex, um, you know, uh, I think many people uh, agree that the most recent appearance of 
Eric Weinstein on Joe Rogan's podcast, which was that April 1st release. Yeah. went very badly for Eric. Joe Rogan it was, was an interesting thing. I will yeah. say they ended on very good terms. Like, if you listen to the whole podcast, because for a while there, it looked dicey. Like, I mean, oh, it's yeah. an interesting thing. Because, like, what happened was Eric starts talking about his theory. And, you know, one thing he did is he, I think without telling them, reserved this domain name, pull that up, jamie.com, which right. is a reference to, <laughs> to uh, Joe Rogan's assistant, Jamie. And I wondered mm-hmm. if they, if they were thinking, because at one point, Joe looked at Jamie and said, how do you feel about that? I wondered if at that point, Joe was thinking like, dude, I mean, it's one thing for me to say, okay, you can come on April 2nd, you know, but when you start like reserving domain names uh, and using them to promote your theory and anyone looking at the domain name would think it's my domain or Jamie's domain, let's, and, 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 and Joe Rogan kind of slaps him down. He, he, you know, he's, you know, he says, call up this video and, and, and Joe Rogan says, um, Hey, most of our audience is listening. They can't see the video and like people aren't understanding. And finally they just drift off into something else. And so, and then there's a later episode where he kind of makes fun of uh, Eric for, for uh, reacting so sensitively to uh, some, some uh, granted pretty mean comedy uh, from uh, Tim Dillon. But uh, that was an interesting thing, but, but, you know, at the end, Rogan is like, any, come, come on any time. So I, uh, but I, I agree that was an interesting, I recommend that podcast to people. Yeah. <laughs> it was and fascinating. Then, and then, and then, uh, you know, quite conspicuously, uh, Eric hasn't been back on Lex's show. So, you know, Eric was on Lex's podcast four times. Like, I think that's the most of any guest. And then sort of ever since April 1st, he hasn't been back. So I, I, but that's, that's not that long and not that long, but, but and Lex was kind of falling all over himself to tell, to, to even, I think even in this most recent one to talk about how grateful he is to Eric. I mean, that's the thing, Eric, you know, and look, Eric, you know, he manages, uh, Peter Thiel's money, right? I, I mean, Silicon Valley billionaire. I mean, there's a lot of things about him. That would make you kind of just as soon stay on his good side, right? I mean, he just, he, 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 uh, you know, he's credited with starting the intellectual dark web and he's connected to all these people who, whatever you think of them, are getting lots of attention, the Jordan Petersons of the world or whatever. I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, he has a very funny status in this regard, right? Because on the one hand, his geometric unity is, uh, I think for most people, uh, kind of this, you know, kind of, this joke of a work. So he's not seriously considered, uh, he's not, uh, valued in, for his scientific contributions. On the other hand, his, his portal podcast, uh, which has been hiatus for quite a while now, but that had a big following. Um, uh, and you know, as you said, he, he works with Peter Thiel. So he, he, he's kind of this weird kind of like cultural commentator. I mean, that's what it says on his uh, Wikipedia yeah. webpage where he has a lot of followers on Twitter. He has a huge following on clubhouse. So people do like to hear him speak, but he, but he also, you know, if you look at Reddit, he also has, uh, uh, you know, quite, quite a bad rap, both for GU and, and sort of for, for, for kind of the other questionable things that he says in, in other contexts. So he's sort of like this mixed bag of like, you know, like uh, sort of the, the recurring theme of decoding the gurus, right? You have this sort of guru-like figure who um, uh, it takes effort to sort of really parse the validity or the sensicality of the things that are being said. Yeah. The... um. Uh, let's see. So, I mean, by the way, one thing that occurred to me 
and think about your situation is, you know, again, this acronym of his disc, the, the distributed idea suppression complex. Um, I, I don't doubt that the term kind of applies in, in the sense that often new ideas have trouble getting heard by the establishment. Um, I, I thought that, uh, you know, the, the Brett Weinstein story about telomeres and how he phoned, uh, an eminent scientist and kind of gave her this idea and she followed up and didn't give him the credit. That's totally plausible. It happens all the time in science. Could have happened. And, and Brett doesn't get the credit. I don't know, but could have happened. I don't doubt that, uh, you know, Eric may have had good ideas in grad school that for whatever reason people didn't hear it, it, it happens all the time, but it but it occurred to me that um, in a way, your situation is the situation he is usually decrying. In other words, he is using his levers of power, right? I mean, you know, if Brian Keating calls him and says, "So, so should I have Tim on my podcast?" It's going to be like, like, no, that would complicate our relationship, Brian. If that happened, right? And and uh, he's well connected, and he's getting access to the platforms. And you're not. And, and, uh, that just seems to me kind of ironic. And, and I guess my point is, this is just the way reality works, Eric. I mean, you are now using what power you have to advance your ideas relative to someone's critique. And, and sometimes it works to your disadvantage. And yeah, people should play by the rules. I wish they did more often, but. I, I don't think there's a vast conspiracy out there to persecute Eric Weinstein. I just think this is the way society works. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised just because this is the way people are. I mean, basically he responding like a politician, not as a scientist, but that's, that's the way sort of the, the world works. Uh, also to your point about the Brett Weinstein situation, the, the very first episode of the decoding the gurus talks about the Eric and Brett uh, situation. Yeah. So I, I also recommend listening to that uh, just to get further yeah, that, that's a good episode. I, I, I thought they were maybe 10% too hard on Brett, but, uh, I mean, again, I can see this kind of, the kind of thing he's complaining about happens. I mean, on the other hand, there is a tendency for Eric to look at people in his family and say they're victims of, you're right. I mean, he says, he's famously said that he, his brother and his wife have all done work worthy of a Nobel Prize and yet not gotten recognized. Um, right. Yeah, I, mean, I want to say, I mean, I, 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 this is not the right place to go into the details. It's all sensitive. But, you know, Eric has tried to overtly, you know, you know, uh, suppress my work as well. I don't, I don't want to say too much, but, but it's clear to me now that, that he's really actually acting in bad faith when he talks about how the disc applies to him and yet he's willing to, you know, disc other people. But so I'll, I'll just leave that as a, as a comment. So you mean, you, you mean you're aware of like phone calls he's made or emails he sent or something to that effect? Uh, essentially, yeah. So it's not, it's not just a passive thing. That's right. That's right. That's so right. you use the word crackpot. Um, is that not too strong? I mean, I mean, what, what is a crackpot or a crank? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how would I say? It? Um, in this context, I would describe a, okay, so I guess, the, okay, so let me put that on pause in terms of Eric. I guess the, the stereotypical notion of a crackpot is someone who sends you an email that's like, oh, I've, you know, I've shown why Einstein's theory of special relativity is wrong, and they'll just have some, like, garbled note or even a YouTube video. I've gotten things like that. Uh, so, okay, so that's not uh, 
where Eric is at, but what is the sense in which I'm calling him, you know, uh, you know, a crackpot? Um, uh, it, I guess it, there's sort of a, there's sort of a scientific integrity if you're going to be doing scientific work. Uh, I guess maybe it's, maybe it's hard to sort of isolate, but sort of, it's, it's sort of, a an openness to being wrong combined with the diligence to, to, and competence to get your work correct. Um, and a, a sort of, uh, faithfulness to the subject matter, right? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, your stereotypical crackpot, you know, is someone who's not well-trained in science and they have some kind of delusion that, oh, just kind of pulling some ideas out of their hat, they can just, you know, usurp, you know, the whole edifice of physics, right? Um, and so there, and, and, and so in setting it up that way, I think Eric does satisfy some of these criteria, right? Sort of, um, he's worked in isolation and thinks he has a theory of everything. Um, there are many places where he, where his, his lack of competence in the details shows. Um, he's not willing to engage with his, uh, the only cr- real criticism he's gotten. So he's not being very, uh, honest when he says, you know, that he wants, uh, feedback and, and things like that, that he really wants to promote science. So in, in that sense, it's, in some sense, this geometric unity is, is really more about him, right? He wants to be someone who gets attention for the ideas that he's espousing. Well, he wouldn't and be the first scientist. He wouldn't be the first scientist to fit that description. Oh, yeah, no, he's not the first, but I'm saying, uh, and it also weaves into his whole narrative of the disc and blah, 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 because somehow mm-hmm. part of the significance of the work is that it had to survive the whatever uh, uh, doubts he had as a, a graduate student and things like that. So I, I'm just saying that, you know, that any, you know, any, anyone who's sort of has a good faith uh, approach to this subject, I think it would be a very different form than the form that, that we're seeing it. Yeah. Um, okay. So crackpot is not too strong a word. You think um, uh, is it crackpot? No, no, no. Like- you, is that, I don't know. Is that, is that, I mean, you're, you're, well, I mean, you're here's the thing. I, I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, well, we'll see. I, there's two questions about, uh, relevant to this conversation about what's going on inside Eric's mind to me. This one, I'm just not fit to judge. I mean, I can't judge his paper, your paper, you know, you seem very credible to me. And, uh, and honestly, I start reading his paper and it's like, I'm not even sure these are sentences and I don't have that reaction to your paper. And I mean that. It's like, what pronoun, that, what noun does this pronoun right, refer to? And that's exactly what I mean. I mean, so I, I, yeah, and actually I, I wanted to ask you about this too, because, you know, you uh, with, you know, background in journalism, it's part of your job to vet information and vet your sources. And, and of course, you're inevitably going to wander into domains where you don't have the expertise. And so, and this being one of them. And so how do you, not only vet your sources, but sort of, yeah, think about whether someone's yeah, well, a you know, or not. I, I, for example, I, I watched your video, the, the Eigen Bros video, E-I-G-E-N-B-R-O-S, if people want to Google it on YouTube. And it's like, these guys clearly, they have this whole show. They clearly know some math. Uh, they don't know as much in your specialty as you do, but I just watched that and you seem pretty credible. I'm watching their reaction to you and, and everything. And look, you've, you've published stuff and like i said the journal of mathematical physics and uh having listened to you i listened to you on the on the on the decoding the gurus podcast you seem authentically you know genuinely motivated you didn't enter this with ill intent 
Um, and, uh, so, so far as I can tell, uh, and look, I, I have all kinds of, you, you just watch Eric Weinstein operate and I would have guessed that this theory ultimately doesn't hold up. Just listening to him talk about it and him never being able to be clear about what it is, even, even though in some ways he's a great communicator. He's a, he's in a certain sense, a great orator. He has that in common with Jordan Peterson in different ways, but he's a great order. He, he he's a super smart guy, and and look, you can listen to him talk to physicists. Where clearly he knows a lot about the history of physics. He, he and they and physicists respect us, us respect what he has to say in a certain sense about the history of physics, right? So there's all that to be said on his side, but. Uh, you know the way he rolls this out and everything makes me skeptical. The the uh, the thing I'm not ready to dismiss completely, just in principle, is that he once had a much clearer understanding of this, and he's lost. He once had a clearer understanding of the Shiab operator. Maybe so. I mean, on the other hand, as you say, this paper. I don't know. It it doesn't seem to have the texture and structure of a scientific paper. And That's right. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm not, I I mean, you you know, my other, the other thing I, um, but, but I'm not fit, strictly speaking, to judge whether he's a crackpot or a crank, which I guess are roughly synonymous. Yeah. Um, I I think what makes Eric particularly interesting is that, yeah, as you said, he has, uh, he's he's a mixture, right? He has good aspects and, and not so good aspects. And, and as I, and, and as I've discussed, uh, here and elsewhere, you know, I, I you know, I, I started off, uh, you know, uh, as a fan of him, right? I listened to his podcast. I listened to all the ones with the physicists and I, 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 uh, you know, learned stuff and was uh, impressed by his, his knowledge of things. So I, I, I guess I don't really know how his mind works insofar as un, in, in certain contexts, he's very composed and polished and, and eloquent. And in other contexts, like especially the clubhouse one, He's, he's very disheveled and, 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 you know, just loses his cool. Um, yeah. You know, so, 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 I, well, of course, when I, when I use this term crackpot, which, you know, I don't normally use, I, you know, maybe I used it as a, as a throwaway comment and now we're revisiting it, but, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I don't go down the street, you know, uh, calling, calling random crackpot, people but, crackpot. But, but, yeah, they, but, they, but, or, or anyone really, I don't, that's just not in typically of my vocabulary, but I, but to the extent that we're going to call them that, I, I, I mean, the, in these specific instances where, the descriptions I, I used apply. So of course in the clubhouse instance, in his write up, um, you know, we're, let's, let's be fair. Like we're, we're all, uh, we all, we all wear many different hats. We have many different contradictory aspects to ourselves. This is not mm-hmm. to say that Eric doesn't know what he's talking about in all contexts. That's clearly false. Right. You know, we, right. So, so I'm, I'm talking about in the specific geometric unity uh, context. Yeah. Now the other way I have sympathy for him is, uh, I, I kind of know this, but look, all people, it's a psychological finding that the average person thinks they deserve more credit than they get. And I, I have the feeling as somebody who's, you know, uh, getting older, looking back, hey, maybe I should have gotten more credit for this idea in this book or something. I know the feeling. It, it's, and, and you can tell that's what motivates him, but I guess because he got kind of no credit for so long, right? I, maybe it's more intense or something. And I can imagine that, that it's in some sense a legitimate grievance and that 
at one point he would have been able to do a better job of presenting this theory. I can imagine all that. I don't know. I mean, the other thing I'd say is there's a lot, lots of kind of contributions you can make to ideas. There, there are people, even in my field of just, you know, mundane argument, uh, making arguments about politics, history, culture, whatever, who come up with flashes of insight that people can build on, but they could never build an argument themselves, right? They, they can't do an edifice and, mm. But they're still valuable. That, that, that's great. But if they do a bad edifice, it's fair game for somebody to point that out. Um, sure. It, uh, so yeah, but but to your point about Eric not getting credit, I mean, what's what's kind of appalling is how flimsy his his arguments are. So you know, this thing about oh, he was possibly discouraged by as a grad student from pursuing his ideas, but that that's such a f- relative like. That level of discouragement relative to the scale of credit that he's asking for, you know, to, to have initiated the cyber Witten revolution, that, that's so grandiose, right? I mean, I mean, think about this, right? You know, if you, if you have any good idea, you should expect to be discouraged because if it were just a common idea, someone else would have already worked it or it's, it's so obvious that there's no pushback. So, so in some sense, the fact that he's complaining that he got pushback uh, kind of shows you, um, you know, well, how, how flawed that kind of reasoning really is. The other thing is, to judge him by the way he is now, he seems beyond discouraging. I mean, you're telling me the Eric Weinstein I've seen just said, oh, okay, you're probably right. No, he never says that. He always says, no, I'm right. You know, it's like. That's right. That's right. And that's also a telling sign that, that, um, that he doesn't, uh, can't give any partial credit to yeah. his, his critics. I mean, he, I, I, to be fair, he's not saying that. He's not saying he conceded that they were right, but he did kind of cease and desist in a way that doesn't sound characteristic. Of him. On the other hand, I will say that in that world, there were fewer alternative avenues. You couldn't put it on a blog. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. It was easier to get shut out by institutions in those days. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. The other the other thing I wonder in terms of his state of mind is like that reaction on Clubhouse. And people should listen to the whole thing. It gets pretty intense. Um is that him genuinely – well, is it on the one hand a really Machiavellian attempt to refuse to engage, obvious interpretation, or is it some kind of genuine emotional reaction to what he perceives as a kind of a plot to persecute him? I mean, again, he is conspiratorially minded, and I don't know enough about the Discord history. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to – when you go into a discussion group and see a few people saying critical things about you – uh, think, oh, well, here's a group that's out to get me or something. And if he thought, well, you were sometimes seen in that group, or, I, I mean, I don't know. That, that's another case where I don't, uh, I, I, I don't claim to understand exactly what's going on in his mind. Yeah. I think what's also confusing with Eric is I don't know to what extent he's actually, um, uh, if he's acting in, in bad faith at all in the sense that, you know, is this, uh, all these claims about, uh, you know, being stalked or doxxed or things like that. Is he actually making that up or does he, is that actually true? And he sincerely believes that there are bad actors. Um, regarding this whole, you know, who is Theopolia and the fact that he's anonymous and that's a, a sign of something nefarious going on. I want to say that that's a bad faith argument because I find that you'd have to have a quite a high level of paranoia to think that, you know, one anonymous co-author, uh, to make all those inferences. Um, yeah, but, 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 but even e- ignoring his defenses, I mean, for example, I, I don't know to what extent 
what, what his true attitude of geometric unity is. Like, does he, is he actually in denial that, that there are actually flaws in the theory? Um, or does he know it and he is just participating in the theatrics of denying it and, and things like that? That I, I don't really have a clear, uh, answer. To. Well, I mean, another spectrum along which you can divide people is, how readily they become convinced that they're right about something, you know, like, uh, and you can give people drugs that will affect this, you know, the, the nitrous oxide is a famous ratifier of belief, right? Uh, so much so that you, it won't even be clear afterwards. William James wrote about this, that it won't even be clear afterwards what belief you feel is so true. But at that moment, this is so true. And, and, uh, and, and the, and the normal biochemistry of the brain can give different people different thresholds for, intense belief and you know could be well be as a graduate student he became convinced he was right and 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 lots of people become convinced they're right about a whole argument or worldview at some point and then later people pick it apart and they realize they were a little too 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 quick to pass that judgment um but because no one would talk to him about it apparently they all dismissed it he didn't get any of that he was sure it was right a few decades later he can't reconstruct the whole thing, but he remembers the certainty. And and again, he's a smart guy. I mean, I, I'm sure there were times when he could say, hey, I just had this insight. And this guy who's dismissing my grand theory didn't have that first. I had that first. I'm sure that's true sometimes. He's very smart. Uh, so I can imagine that scenario where, by his own admission, he can no longer reconstruct the theory, but he believes that he once could have fleshed it out completely and he and, and he has that residual conviction of rightness. I don't know. Sure, but 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 what I said, uh, but that that would if if he if that were his uh, attitude, then there are much more effective ways of con- of conveying that uh, that uh, would uh, you know like you know for example like you know famously you know you, you've heard of Fermat's last theorem you know Fermat. Right. You know, had this, had thought he had a, you know, whatever. He, he claims to have had a proof and he said it was, you know, too large to fit into the margin. And it took centuries later until Andrew Wiles proved it. Right. Um, you know, so in this, this case, you know, maybe, uh, it's a similar phenomenon, right? Uh, Eric didn't write it down or maybe he did, but he lost it. And, you know, he could just say with humility and, and graciousness that, oh, you know, uh, I lost, my notes and uh, I hope somebody else figures it out. I mean, that's one option or maybe he doesn't want other people to figure it out. That's also his right. I, I just don't, you know, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't think this is just a personal bias, but what I'm saying is that like th- th- there is a kind of um, a certain respect you have for your audience com- coming either as a writer or as a scientific thinker, or as a communicator, such that if you truly believe you had a claim on something mm-hmm. that you thought about something, and, and, but for whatever reason, it's, it's no longer in your head or it's, there's some missing details. I, I can think of many other effective ways of presenting that to the world, which would reflect better on both Eric and, and be more enticing to his intended audience than what he has done. Uh, and, and what, what he has done is much more consistent with sort of the more negative interpretations of, of, of what he's doing than, yeah. than, you know, these possible positive once. Well, I think in a way this gets back to the media environment on which in which he gained prominence to begin with, right? Like when he burst on the scene to most people, like intellectual dark web, so on. Uh, 
is an environment in which extreme pronouncements get positive reinforcement. It's like a lot of people may hate him, but your tribe is attracted, right? And and he's prone to the dramatic pronouncements. It has worked in the sense of getting a lot of people paying attention to him. And, and, and a number of these intellectual dark web people are, I think, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, like stark, dramatic pronouncements. And if you say I've got this grand theory that's not only going to unify physics, but get us beyond the solar system, it gets attention. And, and, and he was working initially not with an audience of physicists. Those weren't his followers, right? Um, so I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting case study. Yeah, I mean that getting that getting beyond the solar system is also in the crackpot sort of uh, you know metrics. Well, that's because you think Einstein set the speed limit, Tim. We will see. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, I mean, all of these have to do with sort of the difference between what's claimed and what's actually done, right? Because then you know there's just too many things that are being uh, claimed than that are actually uh, being put on the table. Well, I assume your I assume your comment was was a bit facetious. Well, it was. Although, again, what do I know? I mean, physics is not done. Uh, we thought Newton was the last word. Einstein showed he wasn't. I mean, who knows? I, I I'm agnostic, especially in areas that I know nothing about. And physics is yeah, one of those. All I'm saying is that you can string together in any field of knowledge, right? There are uncertainties, limitations. Like, yeah, maybe the speed of light. It's just a limitation in our current understanding of physics that isn't a true limitation. Uh, so any person could come along and, and sort of exploit that uh, existential, or sorry, epistemological limitation and and just say, okay, well, you know, oh yeah, of course we can get you know, leave the solar system if, if only we could break the speed of light, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and um, you know, there's a there's a way of doing that that isn't, um, you know, very uh, good faith or scientific. And, and, and it just doesn't fall, you know, just because in principle there could be yeah. uh, a way to break the speed of light doesn't mean that it makes sense for you to assert that and claim that you might have something that could lead to that. that that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, and I'm just trying to, to play devil's advocate uh, on behalf of Eric because he's not here. I don't. I don't know, uh, but I do. It's a weird uh, observing him is a weird experience because he does seem repeatedly to go too far. On the other hand, he he says interesting things, some of which are true. I mean, the establishment does suppress ideas it doesn't want. That that's true. It's just that there are so many cases in which he seems to have been uh, a victim. Uh, in a super dramatic way of this, you know, that uh, you, you think he's going a little too far with it. Uh, and, and yet he'll come up with these examples that are intriguing. I don't know. Um, uh, anything uh, now you had said you had an appointment at this point in time. I don't know if uh, if that's uh, a hard out. Yeah. I no, I, it's, uh, I don't think it's that significant. We can, we can keep on. We can keep on going. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Uh, what else there is to say? Um, uh, why don't we just let you have the have the last word? Um, or unless I follow it up with another mm. one. Yeah, I'm just actually I'm curious from your perspective because you did bring up Brian Keating, and uh, I think he's the one I'm most confused about because 
you know, I read his book, Losing the Nobel Prize. And from that, at least based on that book, uh, I, you know, not only was it a well-written book, but, you know, it, it displayed all the characteristics of what I thought of the way a proper scientist thinks about science and, mm-hmm. and the like. And what I find confusing is juxtaposing that side of Brian Keating with his endorsement with Eric Weinstein. Um, you know, so I said, I don't know whether Eric really thinks this theory is true or, or not. And I don't, and also the same question could be said of Brian. You know, I mean, he's not, you know, uh, the most qualified person to assess Eric's work because he's an astrophysicist, not a mathematical gauge theorist. But, you know, you know, even you as a journalist, right, even further removed from the field, you already kind of have some, you know, bullshit detectors, you know, alerting you that, you know, maybe certain things don't make sense. And, uh, I'm just wondering to what extent, uh, why that hasn't been activated in Brian Keating. I mean, as you, as you heard on the Clubhouse podcast, right, he's very deferential in a way that, um, in my mind, almost compromises his sort of scientific judgment. And yeah, that, that to me is a mystery. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know very much about that generally. I, I noted the difference both, I noted both at club and clubhouse where, you know, again, he supported Eric in what I thought was a very dubious maneuver. Uh, and I noticed that on, on Brian Keating's podcast, he was very deferential to Eric. Maybe he's that way with all his guests. I don't know. Um, but you know, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want my answer to the question to be about Brian Keating. I don't know anything about him, but I would say that, um, well, my view of the world as a journalist is a lot of things are ultimately about power in this world. And Eric agrees. That's the funny thing. He agrees that, you know, people use power in institutions to get have let to 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 have their ideas carry the day and rival you know and and blah 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 he he believes that the world is largely about uh, power i think eric has become a pretty powerful person in the modern eco uh, media ecosystem you know it, it can be a vague thing like people thinking hmm i wonder if he can get me on joe rogan's show right it, there are all kinds of ways that uh, a person's different kinds of power, whether it's being Peter Thiel's money manager. And, you know, Peter Thiel, I learned, uh, I guess it was in this New York Times piece about the rationalist community. He's given money to academics, you know. Um, mm. I, I doubt, I, I have no reason to believe Eric is involved in that. But again, it's the kind of thing that if you're aware of it and you think, oh, he's, you know, you might, you might treat him nicely. I don't know. Uh, he, but, but he's got, he's got a powerful podcast. He's connected to these power podcasts. They seem to treat him, you know, deferentially, you know, power is a funny and fluid thing. And, uh, I think what you and I agree on is that it's, it's, uh, not entirely satisfactory the extent to which he seems to be operating along those channels in getting this theory out there rather than engage obviously serious critics who have the credentials to be criticizing him. That's exactly right. And actually, but in some sense, I, I, I take this as, uh, as a positive learning experience. I think to myself, imagine if I was, I don't know, fighting against big pharma or tobacco company or, or whatever, like truly powerful institutions. I, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I would be fat fighting a much more uphill battle, right? Where there's real, money and lives at, at stake. And so 
and there they would also be doing power moves of, of, of their sorts, right? Uh, um, and so I don't think there's anything unique about my situation. In many ways, it's, it's quite mild. Like, imagine if, you know, all these cases where there's like, uh, you know, uh, you know, ac- accusations of rape or other kinds of misconduct, right? It's, it's, you know, where it's much more egregious, right? So, so for me, this is sort of my first taste of that kind of, uh, power difference, albeit in a much more, you know, relatively benign setting. Yeah. But I think, you know, uh, I mean, the good thing is, I mean, the same media ecosystem where, uh, you know, Eric's well plugged in, he's operating at a very powerful level. It is porous enough that like you're getting some attention. You're on the Decoding the mm-hmm. Gurus podcast, this Eigenbros thing. There's this, there's places people can go to judge you. Um, and, uh, so we'll see how this plays out. I mean, like I said, I think he's a fascinating person who in many realms has a lot to offer. Uh, 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 but I, I, it seems to me that, that you have not been given the day in court you deserve. Um, and it's disappointing how, uh, some people have participated in that. Um, I don't know. Anything else? Uh, uh, yeah, actually, I, sometimes I think to myself, well, what would have happened, you know, if I were, I mean, I certainly don't think uh, Eric was expecting some, some random person at Google to respond to his work. You know, if I were, if I were a, a well-known professor responding to the work, I'm curious how this would have played out uh, instead or, but, or also if I were also, you know, you know, being at Google makes me at least somewhat, uh, I guess, reputable. If I were just some random uh, yeah. person with the random job, maybe I'd even have much a much harder time getting this out. So there's there's sort of different ways, and I guess this could have played out. But overall, at least the message is out there. And, well, uh, let me ask you this: How many people are even fit to judge the argument you're making? I mean, it's a it's a relatively narrow, right? I mean, gauge theory, uh, all this. I mean. Because one thing that could happen is, is some physicists at prominent institutions could weigh and read your thing and say, yeah, this makes sense. Um, are there that many people really fit to judge or is the problem that not that many people are taking him seriously to begin with? Uh, so right now it's certainly more of the latter, but at the beginning it was very few people could understand it. You know, the thing is I did my PhD. D in basically the same area that Eric did. You know, he did his PhD at Harvard, mine at MIT. So we have the same academic lineage, essentially. And so I was one of the handful of people that could, you know, evaluate the work. Um, so this is where my, my particular skill set was, was most useful. Specifically um, in gauge theory. And uh, is that's that right. It? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, before our paper came out, you know, there's only maybe at most, you know, two dozen or so people that could really uh, read the work. It's just that the the other people would have been academics that aren't going to entertain uh, that you know Eric's work, and you know once our paper came out, you know I'd say the factor probably increased by a hundred because now you know graduate students and, and the like can can follow our work, and now with the Eigenbros episode, that's all that should have expanded by another factor just because um, I sort of explained more of the technical details and gave a more uh, expository uh, uh, you know presentation of our work. Mm-hmm. So I think by now, anyone who has a sufficient math physics background can understand the work. And, and you can see it, you know, in the Reddit threads. And, and even the fact that Joseph independently on Clubhouse was pushing Eric, that would obviously would not have happened had it not been for our 
work, right? So I think now is Joseph uh, yeah. a professor of physics or something somewhere or what? What is he, he's a mathematician? Yeah, he's okay. I, I forget where, but yeah. Um, so in some sense, I actually don't think there's much of a battle anymore, at least on the physics ground. I mean, I, I think you know, it's sort of beating a dead horse at this point. Um, it's really now up to Eric how he responds, and I don't know. I mean, you know, our response paper isn't going away, right? And uh, certainly no one in academia is taking his work seriously. You know, if they're, you know, if you discount Brian Keating and maybe some of his cronies. Um, so I, I, I don't see there being any more scientific controversy. Uh, and, you know, to the extent that Eric is serious about addressing criticisms, it's going to be our work that he needs to be concerned about because it's not going to be coming in from anywhere else. Mm hmm. Okay. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and, uh, people, again, we, we will link to, I mean, they can Google you and pretty much find this stuff. Uh, but we, we will link to your blog post, uh, that launched your paper on, on, uh, Sabina's blog, uh, and the, the paper itself. And of course, Eric's things. Um, and, uh, where, what else, uh, do you have a Twitter handle you want to share yeah, with us? Yeah, sure. It's, 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 I am Tim Nguyen. That's N-G-U-Y-E-N after the That's Tim. Right. That's uh, right. For people who are listening to this and not watching. Um, and, uh, uh, and okay. So, and you're going to, you're going to keep talking about this, I guess. Uh, right. You're going to. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I have, uh, uh, you know, other things going on in my life. I have a full-time job, but, uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but to the extent that, uh, uh, there needs to, you know, I, uh, let's put it this way. I think, you know, I feel like there's, there's going to be more rounds of back and forth, you know, so sort of, I came out with the release. Then Eric had his podcast and his clubhouse thing. And then I responded with, with now this round of podcasts, you know, decoding the gurus, Ivan Rose, mm-hmm. your show. Um, and I suspect there will be a f- probably some more iterations of this. So, so I'll be around and we'll, we'll see what happens. Hope so. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you taking the time, uh, you and Theo, whoever Theo may be, um, to, to, you know, to do the work, to put the paper together so that there's something, uh, you know, substantive to talk about. Uh, that's the way science works. So, uh, hope to see you down the road and I'll be, I'll be watching to see how this unfolds. So thanks a Indeed. lot. Thank you for having me.